Welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Page. John is a botanist and entrepreneur who has deep expertise in the cannabis plant. John has a PhD in botany from the University of British Columbia and helped lead the team that published the first cannabis genome sequence back in 2011. In addition to a long research career studying cannabis and plant chemistry, John is also a successful entrepreneur. He founded and was CEO of Anandia Labs, which he started in Canada in 2013 and later sold to Aurora Cannabis in 2018 for around $100 million. John served as chief science officer for Aurora until just recently. And John and I spoke about all things cannabis science, ranging from the botany and natural history of the cannabis plant and what the plant does, the chemistry and biology of cannabis and its psychoactive effects, and whether or not different types of cannabis can cause different types of effects and how that relates to its chemistry. John also shared some amazing stories about transitioning from scientific research to starting, building, and selling a cannabis company and shared his thoughts on what's next for the industry. If you enjoy this content, please consider liking, sharing, or subscribing. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Page. John Page, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on, Nick. How, uh, how are you doing and where are you calling in from? I'm doing pretty well. I mean, uh, I say that with all the concerns around COVID that we're all experiencing. Um, and I'm actually in my, my dining room, which sort of doubles sometimes as my home office in, on the west side of Vancouver in uh, British Columbia, Canada. Excellent. And can you just start out by saying a little bit about your background in science? So what are your degrees in and what are your scientific credentials, basically? Yeah, so I, I have um, a Bachelor of Science degree, an honors degree in biology um, from the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. And I also have a PhD in botany from the same institution from UBC. Um, and I did those pretty much back to back, um, took a, took a year and a half off between an undergrad and a PhD. And then I, um, left Canada as a postdoctoral scientist that I went to Germany, um, first to the university of Munich in, in Munich to, um, do, I mean, my, my, my PhD was essentially on phytochemistry. So identifying new molecules from plants that have, in this case, they had antibiotic properties. Mm-hmm. And I went to Munich, um, sort of change things up and, and really get into the world of biosynthesis. So, you know, how plants make um, secondary metabolites or specialized metabolites. And so I was studying um, alkaloid biosynthesis in Munich. And then the lab I was with um, moved to a new institute in a, in a city in the sort of middle of Germany called uh, Halle. It's actually a really old historic site in a, or a historic center, but also an academic center going back hundreds of years. And I worked at a, a Leibniz Institute of Plant Biochemistry there, also doing biosynthesis work. Um, and actually, I sort of I went 
to Germany as a postdoc thinking I would spend a couple of years there. I was really there for almost four and a half years or something. Um, and, and sort of moved from being a, a postdoc to a group leader, having my own small research team. And then I took a job back in Canada with the National Research Council or NRC in a, in a prairie city called Saskatoon. And I, I worked there, the title was research officer. I worked there for a decade, 2003 to 2013, doing um, pretty much that using, uh, you know, biochemical and, and molecular tools to, to try to understand how plants made specialized metabolites. So that, that was kind of, you know, both academic training and then into the, the job world for me. Mm -hmm. And then how did you get into cannabis? When did that enter the picture for you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's two parts to that story. I mean, where I grew up, so I'm here today in Vancouver, but I grew up on Vancouver Island. I was born in Victoria and I lived in a sort of smaller community on the east coast of Anchor Island called Courtney. And cannabis was was pretty much um, present, let's say, in the environment or the culture and in places like that. So, you know, there was lots of, of cannabis around. So I was definitely familiar with it, both as a, you know, a high school student and, and uh, a university student. Um, but I, I wasn't formally working on it. You know, I, I, you know, I think everyone who was interested in, in, plant chemistry probably thought a little bit about cannabis and THC, no matter if they studied it or not. But the, the encounter with cannabis on the academic or research um, side was kind of fortuitous. So I mentioned I finished my PhD. This was sort of like Christmas 1997. And I had um, NSERC. So that's, the, that's sort of the NSF, the big federal funding agency for, for science in Canada. I had an insert postdoctoral fellowship that I had to kind of take up quickly or it would, I would have lapsed or something. So I, I moved to this lab in Munich, Germany, um, the, at the university there, whose main focus was alkaloid biosynthesis. And so their um, lead, his name was Meinhard Zank, he, he had studied all sorts of alkaloids, but in particular morphinan alkaloids from opium poppy. So this would be, you know, morphine, codeine, thebane the big alkaloids for which that plant is known. And, you know, obviously the source of lots of medical value, but also the, the, the crisis of opiate addiction in our society. So that, that plant was intensively studied there. And to do that work, they had um, the lab there, the, 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 the professors had um, a federal drug license from the German government. It was, uh, I think the, the body is called the Bundes Opium Stella, which is sort of the, the licensing agency. So they had opium poppy growing in, you know, very secure and controlled um, system up on the roof of this university building, which was like about three blocks from the, the main train station. Unit. And, you know, the, there was a couple floors of labs and then this kind of grow area, but because they had that federal drug license, they were also, and, and that allowed them to grow opium poppy, but also possess standards for things like morphine, mm -hmm. which they needed for analytical purposes. But um, they had a couple of years before I arrived, got interested in cannabinoid production and, and how, and using some of the tools of using, like they were sort of feeding stable isotope labeled precursors 
and using NMR to kind of dissect out how carbon flux moved through metabolic pathways. It was a kind of a cool technique at the time. They had applied that technique to cannabinoids, which meant they, they were growing cannabis as was permitted by their license. So I started a project trying to actually um, clone an enzyme of alkaloid production, which was involved in making um, alkaloids like berberine, which is this yellow, almost fluorescent alkaloid that's found in, in some species of berberis. And actually around where we are in Vancouver and Seattle, it's found in, in Oregon grape. If you look at the roots or the rhizomes of Oregon grape or Mahonia, there's a bright yellow color to that. So those alkaloids were interesting for medical purposes as well. And I was trying to clone an enzyme involved in, in the, the production of those um, alkaloids. Mm -hmm. The enzyme is called S-tetrahydroprotoberberin oxidase or stocks. And I spent about six or seven months sort of learning molecular biology as I tried to clone this thing. And, um, and it didn't work. I mean, I, maybe it was longer than seven or eight months, but you know, by, by sometime in my first year in Munich, I was not making the kind of progress that I, that I wanted to. And I, I really started to think about other projects and mm -hmm. being knowledgeable about cannabis and its importance, and then spending some time on the textbook biochemistry, which really revealed cannabinoid production was pretty much unknown. Um, at least the enzymes that were doing that. I, I talked to the, the, my postdoctoral supervisor and I had come with my own fellowship money. So I had a bit more freedom and she was like, yeah, absolutely. And so I started, you know, grinding up cannabis and looking like isolating trichomes and all that kind of stuff, which we could talk about more, but it was kind of like, I just, happened to be in the right place at the right time with a lab mm. that had probably one of the few drug licenses, even in Germany that could grow plants like opium poppy and, and cannabis. And hmm. I jumped on that opportunity. So you, you never really at the beginning intended to study cannabis. You were just studying this other project and it happened to be in this place that had these licenses. And then your main project basically failed, I think is what you said. And so you shifted you had to shift to something else. And so it was this fortuitous yeah, opportunity. I guess I wouldn't say failed. It kind of faltered. It was just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, you, you come from a research career as well. I mean, you know, projects just is bogged down and don't move mm -hmm. forward. And, and I, and, you know, I would also say that I, my, so my career in, in plant biochemistry was generally guided by the fact that I was interested in, plants and molecules from plants that that had relevance to human culture mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that was more related to their medical properties but certainly I spent a bunch of time as an undergrad being totally um, fascinated by the sort of chemical side of ethnobotany mm -hmm. I mean you know I kind of idolized guys like Wade Davis and read all the Richard Evan Schulte's books about about those days of, of you know, Yahe or ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I was, you know, very aware of the, you know, the sort of mediation between plants or the role that molecules from plants played in, in human culture. So it wasn't like a, you know, fortuitous to, to end up in a lab where cannabis was able to be grown. But I think the, the, the sort of field had been sort of 
prepared for me mm. to be really excited about working on cannabis as the, as the focus. So before we jump into cannabis, what, I mean, cannabis makes, has THC inside of it. You're, you just mentioned, you know, poppies that have things like morphine, you know, plants have antibiotics and all sorts of stuff. Why do plants make all of these drugs that happen to be useful to humans in the first place? Can you talk a little bit about the, the ecology of why that's true? Well, I think, I mean, plants are, you know, amazing chemists. Um, and I think it's a truism that you hear people who, who, you know, teach in this area talk about, I mean, they're sessile. So plants sit there, right mm -hmm. here, you know, and you just have to, you know, look at the trees outside or something and you see they're not moving. And so, you know, herbivores and, and insects and, and even pathogens that sort of blow in with spores on the wind, they, they arrive at that plant and they're, they, they may be inflicting damage by say eating the roots or leaves or, um, and so plants, they have no, they have no nervous system. They don't, you know, other than things like Venus flytraps that actually mm -hmm. move and trap insects. They can't run away. They can't run away. And their world then is very much, their, their ability to kind of uh, interact with their environment is very much related to their chemistry. And I mean, interact with their environment, like deal with, with biotic, so, you know, animal stresses, for example. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they produce many, many chemicals as defenses. Um, some of those, you know, not every specialized molecule that we find, specialized metabolite we have, we find in plants necessarily has a, a, a known function. And, you know, we're still mm -hmm. trying to figure out what cannabinoids do, but in general, they're there for defensive purposes, sometimes for more signaling purposes so to, to signal with other, other plants or other organisms. Um, sometimes it's about like UV protection. So things like flavonoids and leaves are probably mm. not there for, you know, defend against a, a herb, herbivore, but they, you know, making sure that the UV light doesn't damage the plant. Um, but I think things like um, morphine and, and cannabinoids, you know, I, I guess it's, it's nice to think that, that the plants sort of design these molecules because mammals or other animals had receptors that those molecules interacted with and that that would therefore provide some sort of defensive um, mechanism. And, you know, you could sort of think that, for example, morphine in, in poppy, that we're, we're, where opium poppy makes alkaloids like morphine and codeine is in the capsule. That's like the sort of fleshy sort of almost fruit around the seed um, production. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the plant has invested all its, its, you know, sort of evolute ecological future in the, in the seeds to be the next generation. And, you know, opium poppy is an annual. So it's just, it lives in, dies in one season. So those seeds have to survive. And so when an animal comes along and eats the seed capsule, there's no seeds left. So the evolutionary pressure to protect those seeds is really, really strong. And so there's latissifers. These are little, little channels that contain latex, kind of milky sap that house the alkaloids in there. And so you could see like an, an insect would come along and start gnawing its way in to get those seeds. And the seeds are actually quite rich in fat, uh, opium 
or poppy seeds are, are kind of tasty as humans know as well. And so you could sort of see having things like morphine and codeine to ward away insects or mm -hmm. maybe mammals that came along and tried to chew their way into that capsule. But we can't, I'm not sure we can even really say that. I mean, it could be that they just provide a real bitterness mm -hmm. to the, and it's just kind of accidental that they kind of interact with our, mm -hmm. our receptors or, um, I mean, the latex itself, like, exudes out and gets all sort of sticky and gummy as it kind of, it gets exposed to air. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just a physical aspect to, to preventing that. So, you know, I think there's been, you know, lots of ideas around coevolution of drug plants and humans. And this idea that, you know, cannabis evolved to produce THC or other, other cannabinoids because they interact with our receptors or opium poppy evolved. I'm going to say, you know, in the, in the, the case of alkaloids, maybe, but with cannabinoids, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it's just kind of accidental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does seem to be a common theme that when a plant is making drugs of some kind that we subsequently use for our own purposes, they're pretty much always bitter tasting. They don't taste good. It does look right. a lot like the plant is just making stuff to make it, make itself unpalatable. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it, you know, there's not too many human consumers of cannabis who would go into a, a grow room, you know, at, at peak flowering and start chewing on that, but that <laughs> stuff is going to taste pretty nasty. Um, so what about cannabis, the plant, what kind of plant is it? What's it related to and where does it come from originally? So cannabis is an annual plant. And I mentioned that that means it grows in, dies in a year in general, though you can get in, in more tropical locations, kind of almost perennialized uh, cannabis and in cannabis, you know, in, inside, you know, greenhouses and, and grow sites can also live for a long time. But um, so it's an annual plant. It's uh, it's a member of the cannabaceae family. So that's a, a plant family that's, that's quite small um, contains cannabis and humulus. So humulus, is the hop plant, the plant that, that's grown uh, to, to be used for, for making or flavoring beer. It contributes the bitter flavor to beer. And just as an aside, I, I, I never, um, I, I didn't mention this before, but when I was in Germany and I was working on cannabis, um, uh, our institute, so I, I, and I started in Munich and I moved to a city called Halle to join another institute and then the Institute at Halle uh, recruited a new research group from, from the Netherlands. And they came in and we had a kind of research day where we talked about all our work that we were doing. And I, I presented a talk on cannabis and cannabinoid biosynthesis. And, and a, another researcher who was, who was just going to uh, move with this new group, um, his name is Fred Stevens, um, and he's at Oregon State University now. He came up to me and said, hey, you're working on cannabis. You should be working on humulus, too, because um, hot, the hot plant is equally fascinating from the chemistry standpoint. And he had done a lot of work on, on the, the chemistry of metabolites and hops. And so we started collaborating. So I worked in parallel on hops and cannabis for a while. But... Um, uh, so the, the cannabis plant, it's a cannabasi, it's close relative is humulus, it's dioecious, which is a Latin term that I think it translates into two, in English to two houses. Really what it means is there's a male plant and a female plant. So it's the sexes are on separate plants. Um, 
I guess the other thing, a few sort of features of, of cannabis that make it interesting, obviously it produces cannabinoids. It's the, I mean, there, there are a few other plants in the world that produce cannabinoid-like compounds, but it, cannabis is, is really the only one that produces this plethora of, of, of cannabinoids like THC and CBD. Um, it, it produces bast fiber. So, you know, cannabis is, is used by humans as a drug plant. It's used um, as a source of this high tensile strength fiber. And, and we actually think that maybe the first uses of cannabis were more related to the fact that this bast fiber and bast fiber refers to the fact that these fibers are these sort of strengthened strands of fiber that are associated with the phloem. Phloem is like kind of the pipes that transport sugars in, in plants and they're on the outside of the, the stem. So if anyone who's grown cannabis, um, if you've ever even like a, like a garage grow up or whatever, you've, you've tried to rip a cannabis plant, like this, rip the stem mm -hmm. apart. It's almost impossible. You have to like saw it, cut it with knives, chainsaw, whatever. Um, it's because the bast fibers are like super strong. So cannabis is also the source of, of, of fiber. And um, it's also, it produces seeds that are really rich in, in amino acids and, and fatty acids. So it's quite a nutritious hemp seeds in this mm -hmm. case are, are quite nutritious. Um, yeah. What more to say about, about, uh, about cannabis? Um, we know like where it evolved and where it was first <laughs> domesticated. Yeah. I mean, it, it's generally believed to have originated in, in sort of central Asia, I guess, you know, Northern India, Afghanistan, um, Iran, that, that kind of area, or or uh, Western China is another mm -hmm. um, location that's that's talked about, and I think that's you know a lot of plants where their their highest diversity occurs. That's sort of the the center of origin, and that's kind of where I think you know both the the historic distribution before humans started trading it and moving it around the world. Um, uh, would, so it originated in Central Asia. Um, you know, it's domestication is, I mean, it's still be in the process of being domesticated, right? Like, um, as a, as a crop, hemp is, is not really much of a domesticated crop. There's a lot of variability there. It doesn't have all the sort of standard crop type features that, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like very stable lines that say corn or canola have, um, but humans, I think, you know, there's evidence from from China of a, a couple thousand years ago when when uh, you know it started hemp or suggestion of hemp started showing up in sort of medicinal plant kind of descriptions. Um, there's this famous case of a, and I, I've often shown this picture of a of a mummified um, a, what what people think might have been a shaman or mm -hmm. or high ranking official. Um, the grave was discovered in Western China in, in an area that's very arid and dry and that preserved the, the grave. Um, but this person, I think the date is 2,700 years ago. So quite, quite early um, in terms of, of culture, but they were buried with a whole bunch of different grave goods, which included something like 750 grams of dried canvas flowers. <laughs> and there was a paper, a nice paper, done um, Ethan Russo is one of the authors, I think, where 
um, they analyzed some of the, the chemistry of this, this preserved plant material and showed that it had can, cannabinoid derivatives, I guess, degraded cannabinoids present. So the argument was that it wasn't just happenstance that this was a nice plant or, or uh, you know, the smell was sought after. It was probably, a, you know, used for drug purposes um, mm-hmm. back in those days as well. And so when cannabis, you know, we use it for a variety of purposes you mentioned. There's the fiber, there's the seeds that can actually be eaten, and there's the consumption for psychoactive and or medicinal effects. Can you talk a little bit about the part of the plant that is actually producing the THC and the other things? What part of the plant is that? Right. So this was the, the, when, when cannabis makes cannabinoids in almost all parts of the plant. So you could, you know, if you have very sensitive analytical equipment, you can detect low levels of cannabinoids, even in roots. But the most of these, the, the, the highest abundance of cannabinoids are actually found in the, the flowers, the, generally the female flowers. The male flowers are, are not as, as you know, chemically interesting, but there are cannabinoids in male flowers as well. But it's the female flowers, and they have um, this uh, coating of trichomes. So trichomes are epidermal hairs, so epidermis being the skin of the plant. So it's like an outgrowth of the, of the skin of the plant where... And, and in general, these are glandular uh, trichomes. So uh, a, a female cannabis flowers will have a high density of stalked glandular trichomes. So there's a little kind of multicellular stalk, which mm-hmm. is topped by um, what is essentially a little chemical factory. And I've, you know, I've probably overused that description over the years, but it's, it's really true that um, what's happening is that those trichomes are not photosynthetic. They're not you know, using sunlight to make energy, they're actually just consuming resources from the rest of the plant. And they're uh, the, at the top of the stalk is a little disc for, for Canadians. I often called it a hockey puck. So little, almost like a little, little disc of, of, um, of cells that are completely um, committed to making cannabinoids and terpenes, which are the, the two sort of main classes of, of chemicals that are found in trichomes. And they, they're just, you know, receiving sugars and, and nutrients from the rest of the plant. They're converting them into cannabinoids and then they're um, exporting them, somehow secreting them out of this, the factory, which are these discs into what is a storage site. That's kind of like a bag or a balloon connected to the, the disc cells. And that's um, this sort of sticky resinous material, which is predominantly cannabinoids, but also terpenes is then held there. And, and that, that balloon of metabolites is, is encompassed and protected by a cuticle and then some, some cell wall components as well, which is still being sort of studied. So it's, it's kind of like, almost like a, a supermarket shopping bag. It's kind of this, this thin, but, but you know, strong layer that protects the metabolites. And basically protects them from, you know, being washed away by the rain, mm-hmm. being knocked off by the wind. But they're likely there because arthropods, insects, will come along and their, you know, hard exoskeleton will, will break open those trichomes. And then all this goop, this runny 
resinous material, which is again, you know, probably pretty bad tasting and sticky, then just gums up the insect. Or I guess if you're a mammal and you're coming along and munching on that female flower of cannabis, you're also in, uh, being exposed to those chemicals. And I think it's, it's important, you know, for, for listeners, it's, I mean, the fact that uh, trichomes are like the major site of cannabinoid production, but it's not exclusive. I mean, mm -hmm. there probably is a small amount of cannabinoids found in leaves and other tissues. That's one thing. And then going back to what we talked about before with, with the, the morphine alkaloids that, you know, if, if it's the female flower, that's where, if it's pollinated, at least seeds are going to develop. And I, I said before the, um, Seeds of cannabis are rich in fatty acids and amino acids. I mean, they're, they're really a little nutrition bomb. And so if you're an insect or, a, um, a, you know, giraffe or whatever, you want to get at food like that. Mm -hmm. And so the plant really has to protect those. And so mm -hmm. the female flowers is like study studied with these trichomes that are externally facing, right? They're facing the external environment mm -hmm. and they're really saying like, don't eat me. You know, if you, if you come and chew, through this female flower, or you land on the female flower and you want to get at those developing seeds, you're going to, you know, you're going to get a whole bunch of sticky terpenes. You're going to get these cannabinoids. Maybe the cannabinoids interact with your receptors mm -hmm. or your nervous system. Probably taste bad. Taste bad. Um, certainly, yeah, they, they're going to taste pretty bad. And, and you're probably not going to eat your way through and get all those seeds. And so the plant in many ways is protecting its investment in its, its reproductive future. Hmm. And so when someone has a bag of weed or they're looking at commercial cannabis flower, the tiny little crystals that you see or the stickiness that you might comment on, that's the trichomes. That's where right. all of the chemistry is, all of the chemistry that the consumer is really interested in. Yeah. And so people talk about, you know, how, how cannabis like dried flower, say in a, in a retail store or dispensary, it glistens, it's shiny, there's crystal um, they're seeing trichomes. I mean, mm -hmm. now I think consumers are getting much more educated because of just the way ca the cannabis world has changed. And so they, they know that we're, we're trichome and they know they're looking at trichomes, but you know, really it, it, if you see lots of trichomes, it's a, I think it's reasonable to expect there's lots of cannabinoids, the, the potency of the material is good. The quality is good, but yeah, you're, you're seeing, you know, when you go into, um, a cannabis retail store, you're actually getting a little lesson in, in plant biology and botany by looking at those plants. Interesting. And the plant, the flowers are not actually producing THC directly, right? So what are they, what are they making directly? Yeah. So they're, they're making the acidic forms of cannabinoids. So the, the biosynthetic pathway um, leading to the major cannabinoids um, essentially starts with, with basic building blocks of, of metabolism and constructs these elaborate molecules. But the way it does it is it, it creates a, an acid version. So it make the biosynthesis um, leads to tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, not tetrahydrocannabinol. So it makes the acid form of, of THC often referred, you see it in the literature, THCA, and similarly, uh, cannabidiolic acid is made, or so the carboxic, carboxylic acid form of CBD. And 
cannabigerolic acid, not CBG, not cannabigerol. And so the plant is actually full of acidic cannabinoids. Um, and there is a small amount of neutral. So we would call the THCA, CBDA, CBGA, et cetera, uh, the acid forms, and then the THC, CBD, CBG, the neutrals. Um, and it's, an, it's a non-enzymatic conversion. So it's not an enzyme that's making THC from THCA, or at least we don't think it is. Um, but but it, it occurs via just normal chemical processes like heating, et cetera. And so often when we analyze uh, cannabinoids in, in fresh cannabis, you see almost all of the material is the acid forms, but there's a little bit of neutral material in there. So there's a tiny bit of THC always present. Mm -hmm. So that's why, that's really why cannabis is traditionally smoked, or if it is eaten, it's, it's actually baked first. It's to transfer the acid form of the molecule into the neutral form. Right. So this, this is called decarboxylation. And, you know, that's another term that that's really entered the sort of popular lexicon because of the importance of that reaction. So yeah, these are, the acidic cannabinoids are fairly labile, meaning they're, they're quite readily converted into the neutrals. And, and that's, um, that's occurring when you, you combust cannabis or you, you, you vaporize it at a high enough temperature. And that, that thermal energy is enough to kick off the carboxylic acid, it's lost just as CO2 mm -hmm. and our carbon dioxide and, and uh, leaving THC. Or you can do this, um, you know, by baking or, you know, producing butter where there's, there's heat involved and there's enough time and, and heat to, to make the, the neutral forms. And, you know, this, this also just goes back to that whole sort of ecology side we were talking about where if what we know about the pharmacology of these two different types is that it's the neutral forms that are mainly active, or at least the psychoactivity side mm -hmm. is that THC is the, is the molecule that imparts the psycho, it's the ingredient that's psychoactive in cannabis or the primary psychoactive ingredient. It's not the acid form and the acids don't bind the receptors, the cannabinoid receptors. And I'm sure we'll talk about that stuff as well. But so, you know, the plant is making something in a form that's not the form that binds mammalian cannabinoid receptors. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, you know, if you thought THC was made or, or cannabinoids were made as a defensive um, uh, for their defensive purposes and it was because they interacted with cannabinoid receptors, say in vertebrates like like mammals. Um, but then that means like the, the cow or the giraffe or the donkey or whatever, they would come along and have to heat up the cannabis <laughs> in order to get it. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think, you know, the, the presence of cannabinoid receptors is not, I, I'm trying to remember that if they, they even occur in the insect kingdom, I don't think they do. I don't think they have CB1 receptors, no. Right, so it's kind of like this whole, you know, the, in, it's kind of crops up in, in people's comments once in a while. It's like, oh yeah, cannabis was, was trying to spread through the world by getting people stoned and, and, you know, and it, therefore, you know, 70 million years ago, it involved, it evolved THC. Well, it didn't, it, it evolved THCA and it's mm -hmm. not even really binding the receptors without decarboxylation. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that a lot too. So 
the, the more plausible story from what you've told us is the plant, just like many plants, is trying to protect, protect its reproductive potential, its seeds. It's making chemical compounds because it doesn't have the option of running away or something like, like an animal does. And these chemical compounds are, they happen to be psychoactive when they're converted, but it's really just trying to protect itself. But in the case of human consumption, we take the plant, we harvest the flowers, we process them, and then we, we do end up heating them to consume them in some way. Right. And we obviously have psychoactive effects with THC. So what is actually going on there? How does, it, how does THC actually cause its psychoactive effects? Yeah, so THC um, was discovered as the main psychoactive uh, component of cannabis in the mid-60s in Israel by Raphael Meshulam. Um, and, you know, historically, it took a really long time to figure out how it exerted its effects. Because, you know, what we know about many uh, compounds, some of them poisons, some of them with, with medical function, or, or in some cases, both, um, was that they alkaloids like morphine and, and cocaine and, and strychnine would all, nicotine would all exert their effects by binding a receptor. But with, with THC, after you know, 1964, it was like, well, how does it, how does it do all this stuff? We know it, it has the effects of, you know, you know, getting people, uh, causing euphoria in humans, mm -hmm. um, you know, appetite stimulation, change mood perception, all that sort of stuff. But the mechanism, the pharmacological mechanism was, was unknown. Um, and it was always considered, you know, possible that it bound a, a actual a receptor. So, a, you know, a protein uh, in our nervous system that would then receive a chemical and, and convert that binding into some sort of change in the, in the neuron. Um, but, you know, for the longest time, including when I was, you know, just, um, finishing my undergrad and starting my PhD, it was thought that cannabinoids like THC basically intercalated, so inserted themselves into lipid bilayers in, in neurons in the same way that, that you know, there's, it, it would change sort of membrane fluidity. Like cholesterol or something? Like cholesterol. I mean, ethanol seems to have mm -hmm. a, a component of this as well. Um, and so somehow that would lead to these changes in, in neuronal function that would you know, translate into psychoactivity. It wasn't until like, I'm going to say it was, was that 93, Lisa Matsuda at NIH discovered the CB1 receptor. So the, the idea that was that um, people were looking for receptors um, or were cloning orphan receptors. So this was this, age of molecular biology was hitting neuroscience at the time. And um, they cloned a receptor for which no known ligand, so no binding agent was known. And they started screening um, compounds that were in some chemical library. And they found a synthetic cannabinoid that was really able to tightly bind this, a receptor. And so that was the discovery of the CB1 receptor. And that, and I, I'm going to say 92, 93, um, and so really, you know, that's the history side, but what's happening is THC is, is entering, you know, if you consume cannabis, THC enters your, your bloodstream, it goes into your nervous system, mainly your brain, where there's 
CB1 or cannabinoid 1 receptors in, in high abundance in the nervous system. I think it's actually one of the most or not the most abundant um, receptor in our brains or in the brains of mammals. And it, it binds those and this um, receptor then causes, uh, you know, sort of triggers uh, a, a signal which dampens down neuronal function. And this dampening down of neuronal function um, just has an overall contribution to the kind of, I guess, the, the, you say the function of the nervous system and, and causes the changes that we associate with uh, THC intoxication or cannabis intoxication. Again, alterations in mood, perception of time, appetite stimulation, and things like that. So it's actually the plant molecule binding the receptor in our nervous system that's the important part mm -hmm. of, of, of how it is or exerts its effects. So the main effect of THC with respect to getting someone high and causing the classical effects of cannabis comes from its ability to bind and activate the CB1 receptor. Um, what is what is CB1? What is binding to CB1 normally? What's going on inside the body when there's no THC around? Right. So obviously, we don't have the most abundant receptor in our brains just in the hopes that you're going to consume some cannabis. Right. It has has other functions. And so back to the history, the, you know, the, after the CB1 receptor was discovered, then the hunt was on for its endogenous ligand. So it's ligand, it's binding agent that occurs in its normal function. And this was also work done or led in the lab of Raphael Meshulam in Israel. Um, and he had a, a scientist or a postdoc at the time, William Devane, who who did work to actually, um, I think they worked on, on rat, or no, excuse me, pig brains. So they were attempting to isolate the chemical from these brains that would then uh, bind to and, and um, activate these receptors. And they ended up finding a, a lipid signaling molecule called anandamide. Um, so it's an amide, sort of a, almost a prostaglandin type molecule that would then um, was shown to be the in one or one of the endogenous ligands. And then a, a second one was identified pretty soon thereafter called 2AD, 2AG. Or, um, and so 2AG and, and anandamide are, the, are the, the main endogenous or endocannabinoid, um, that endocannabinoids that we have in our nervous systems. Mm -hmm. So I often hear people say when they're talking about anandamide, anandamide is the endogenous cannabinoid. It's inside of us naturally. And that word translates to something like the bliss molecule because anandamide makes you blissful and CB1 is associated with bliss. Is that, is there anything to that? What's the story there? Yeah. I mean, um, well, the, the name anandamide was coined in, by the Meshulam lab, or maybe Raphael Meshulam himself, um, because it was an amide um, by its chemical structure. And anand uh, is a Sanskrit word which translates into bliss. Um, so it was, I think the idea was that, um, you know, the effects of anandamide would therefore be some of the effects of, of cannabis in terms of, you know, producing a feeling of well-being, et cetera. But I'm not, I'm not actually sure if we've even done enough 
you know, human studies on anandamide itself, or if it's able, you know, to get, you know, can you inject people with anandamide or if that's ever done to sort of even determine if it's bliss producing. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think that the kind of the circumstantial evidence is, is what lines up to call it the bliss molecule. Interesting. So THC binds to the CB1 receptor. That's what gets you high. That's why cannabis has its classical effects. There are compounds inside us naturally that also do that to regulate important aspects of our biology all day long. We know that some of the classical effects of cannabis are euphoria, appetite stimulation, other things. You can have side effects as well. You can have people get sleepy on cannabis. Anxiety and paranoia are often talked about as a side effect. What about habit-forming potential and addiction. Can you speak a little bit about what we know in terms of the habit-forming potential of THC and cannabis products generally compared to other common drugs, both licit and illicit? Yeah, so this is not formally my area of expertise, so I'll, I'll kind of you know, give you the information that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in general, you know, the sort of published literature would suggest that something like 9% of regular cannabis consumers. And by regular, I think this is like, you know, daily, you know, higher uh, amounts of consumption will develop a dependency to cannabis, meaning they, they don't want to stop consuming it despite the fact that there might be, you know, problems in their life or, you know, workplace issues or what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, I, from what I've been told, and you know, I've obviously attended lots of conferences on cannabis and cannabinoids and heard lots of lectures in this area, that's kind of on the same level as, as say, caffeine addiction, hmm. um, which many Canadians and Americans definitely are addicted. And the, you know, the fact is there, there is a, like a small sort of physical withdrawal from stopping drinking mm-hmm. caffeine. Um, so about 9% of, 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 people who are regular consumers, that's significantly lower than, you know, alcohol, um, nicotine. Nicotine is obviously one of the more addicting substances that we use in our society. Um, and, and things like heroin and, and cocaine and, and harder, harder drugs, if we call them that, um, have more uh, potential for addiction. Mm-hmm. So in, in general, you know, c- cannabis is, is, I'm going to say relatively benign with the emphasis on relatively, because there are people who have, you know, developed what's called cannabis use disorder. So this is where, you know, their, their consumption is, is, is potentially harmful or, or, you know, in, in impairing their ability to, to, to work or, um, you know, giving them relationship problems, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they, but they don't want to stop because they, they enjoy their cannabis enough. Mm-hmm. So there's some habit forming potential. It's not that there's nothing there. It's not completely benign, but it's probably not as habit forming as, or it's comparably habit forming to common things like caffeine, probably less so than alcohol and nicotine. Cause I, I just hear, I like to talk about that because I hear so much from both sides of that. There's some people that still to this day are demonizing cannabis in, in a way that's probably very excessive. And then there's also people that say it's, it is benign and good for you at all times, basically. Right. You know, and I, I'm not sure um, on, for the latter group who are, are, are generally saying cannabis is completely benign. I mean, I'm going to say nothing is but completely benign. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you know, um, caffeine 
um, seems to be quite benign and, you know, it's in every corner store or what, what have you. And we have, I mean, you're in Seattle, it's kind of like the, the cult of, of caffeination in, in many ways. Um, but there are people who have to lay off coffee because of uh, heart arrhythmias. And, mm. and, you know, there's, there's, I've, I saw some, some evidence before about, you know, people who are slow metabolizers of caffeine versus others who metabolize it quickly and slow metabolizing of caffeine coupled with, with some heart problems can, can put you in the emergency room too. Right. So, um, and sugar is another one. And, you mm-hmm. know, you mentioned cholesterol before. I mean, we just have to be really careful about our, all our substances. And, and I, I think, you know, the same goes for, for cannabinoids and cannabis. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've mentioned a little bit, some of these other compounds that are associated with cannabis beyond THC. And, and you talked about the fact that the trichomes, the parts of the plant that are producing THC are actually chemical factories, so to speak, that are producing a bunch of stuff. So what are some of these other cannabinoids and what are these other kinds of compounds like terpenes and what do we know about them? Yeah, so big question. Um, so the cannabinoids, and, and I guess it might be worthwhile introducing the kind of term phytocannabinoid here just for clarification. I don't use that term um, very much. And I don't, when I publish papers, I don't often say that. But when we talked about endocannabinoids, endogenous mm-hmm. cannabinoids like 2-AG and anandamide, those are the ones that are we produce in our nervous system versus the plant-derived ones like THC and CBD being phyto, being plant. Um, so the phytocannabinoids are a group of I'm going to say approximately 130 uh, metabolites that have been identified in cannabis um, with the main ones being THC and uh, cannabidiol or CBD. So those are the two most abundant um, cannabinoids. Um, And then the other big, I'm going to say the big six and then, but they immediately become the big 12 because Mm -hmm. Each of them has an acidic version, um, or at least almost all of them. So you have tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, THCA, and you have THC. You have cannabidiolic acid, CBDA, and CBD. You have cannabigerolic acid, CBGA, and CBG. Cannabichromenic acid and cannabichromine, so CBCA and CBC. Um, And then... We have uh, tetrahydrocannabivirinic acid, THCVA, and tetrahydrocannabivirin, THCV. So that's, that's another one that, you know, you, you might see at a, at a, a couple of percent in some, some mm-hmm. cannabis plants. Um, and then we, you know, there's, there's similarly a, a CBD version of that. So CBDVA and CBDV. And then um, THC is it can be oxidized to a compound called cannabinol or, or CBN. Mm-hmm. And actually, THCA can also be oxidized to cannabinolic acid. So those are the, the kind of main ones. But then you start. So those are the ones that when I say main, if you were to buy um, cannabis, you know, in the store that's a few blocks from my house here and put it into a chemistry lab that could do the analysis, Mm -hmm. you might expect to see most of those 
big 12 or at least tiny bits of them. And then beyond that, you're starting to get into these cannabinoids that are, are, have been identified by scientists who have been working to find new derivatives, but they're not um, uh, present in, in high amounts in, in all known cannabis, or at least the cannabis that I'm familiar with. And so we're, we're just getting into these dozens and dozens of, of new variants that have you know, there's a methyl group added onto another position that's different. And then there's like a ring closure. And then there's a, there's a kind of a rearrangement that's happened. And, and so that chemical diversity that we, we need to get to that 130-ish number is often all this kind of cloud of very, very small, mm -hmm. I'm going to say relatively insignificant compounds. I see. So that, that's the cannabinoids. Do you want to? No, I was going to ask about terpenes. Yeah. What are the terpenes? Yeah. So, and you know, I said that cannabinoids are, are primarily present in cannabis other than these things like there's a liverwort, which is a little sort of leafy kind of mossy thing that's found in Asia um, that has, has a, a cannabinoid-like compound in it. And there's a, a sunflower in South Africa that has a cannabinoid-like compound in it. Um, but they're, let's call them unique to cannabis for all intents and purposes. The terpenes, on the other hand, are chemicals that are found in almost all plants. Um, in fact, it's probably is all plants in the, in the sense that they're the, they're a chemically and structurally different group than the cannabinoids are they're put together in a different way. Though cannabinoids have a terpene component to them. Mm -hmm. So that we'll talk about that if we get back into biosynthesis. And, and, and so terpenes are the, often the smells and tastes that we associate with plants, like, like the, the pine smell of pine trees is mm -hmm. a terpene, is, is alpha and beta pinene. And, you know, many uh, plants that we, we use in, in perfumery, like lavender, those are, those are uh, terpenes as well. And so the, the cannabis plant makes terpenes as well as the cannabinoids and it, it mixes them together as far as we know in those trichomes, those, those trichome heads, those little compartments or big compartments in some ways that, that contain the goop that, and those, the terpene components of cannabis are composed of two structural classes. So there's the monoterpenes, which have 10 carbons and sesquiterpenes, which have 15 carbons. And that's starting to sound a little bit like too much like third year organic chemistry probably, but it's, it's important to know because, you know, if you're a cannabis consumer and you go down to, to a shop and they're starting to talk about chemicals mm -hmm. like myrcene. So mm -hmm. myrcene is really the most abundant terpene found in cannabis. It's a monoterpene, but people talk about beta caryophylline and that's mm -hmm. a sesquiterpene. And so they're, they're, they're different chemicals what is happening with the terpenes in cannabis too is that it's just they're a highly variable and highly complex mixture it's you know when we look at at the cannabinoid chemistry of normal uh cannabis that's you know available for purchase in in canada or washington state now um you know you're going to see a lot of C thc or as its acid form you're going to see some CBG, you might see some THCV, a little blip of CBC, but there's kind of just a few. Mm -hmm. While the terpene composition of that cannabis is going to be 30 or 40 compounds that are readily identifiable, 
they're going to be, you know, dominated by chemicals like uh, myrcene, pinene, linalool, limonene, beta-caryophylline as, as the major players, but a whole bunch of other ones, which is, I think, why cannabis, I mean, the smell, because that, mm-hmm. that, that's a very, uh, one thing I should have added before is that cannabinoids don't have a smell. Like when you smell cannabis, you're not smelling uh, THC. It's, it doesn't have an odor. It's not volatile. What you're smelling is the volatile terpenes that are being released by those trichomes that are maybe broken, maybe opened up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and those terpenes are then, you know, moving into the, the airspace around the, the plant and you're, you're smelling those. And that's really what's responsible for the unique terpenes are responsible for the unique odor of cannabis. So you've got two classes of compounds. You've got the cannabinoids that includes THC, CBD, and these other ones. And then you've got the terpenes. These are the aromatic compounds that smell. The terpenes themselves have two major types. And what I'm starting to hear more about from people, both in the scientific community, but also on the consumer side in the cannabis industry, is this concept of the entourage effect, that the actual the, the sum total, the, the effects, the full psychoactive effects you're going to get are not just due to THC. They're due to a combination of THC, potentially other cannabinoids, and potentially terpenes. Is, that, is there any truth to, to that? Where is the knowledge today that's scientifically defensible? Yeah, you know, I, I've often added to the entourage effect the word hypothesis mm-hmm. that this is a this is a suggestion it's a hypothesis that attempts to explain some of what we know about the effects of cannabis and and really it, it comes from the fact that um, you know people consuming different types of cannabis that would have different can you know even if there's THC as a dominant molecule there's different minor cannabinoids or different amounts of say CBG in there and then also different profiles, different composition of terpenes that why when you smoke a joint of one type of cannabis with a certain sort of chemical composition, would it maybe make you feel sleepy while an, a joint of another type of cannabis that has a different chemical composition might keep you awake, mm-hmm. right? So this, this has led to the idea that it's not just the major... Uh, not just the amount of THC, it's the other chemical components that are co-occurring with with THC that are contributing to the pharmacology. And I mean, it's a very, I'm going to say it's a very reasonable hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And and I am generally a kind of a proponent of the possibility for this hypothesis to explain the subjective effects of of cannabis and why it's not just the, the sort of, it's called the recreational, the kind of pleasure um, uh, producing effects of cannabis. People who use cannabis for medical purposes also would say the same thing. Like there's mm-hmm. a type of cannabis that really is, is great for their, their pain. And, and yet there's another type that doesn't, it's not as effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the sort of bulletproof scientific evidence so far is just not there. So we're, we're accumulating information and there's been some papers just published in the last year or so about the pharmacology of their minor cannabinoids. For example, cannabichromine, CBC, which is 
little bit present in almost all the bud that people are buying in California and Canada and places. Um, you know, is it contributing something that kind of modifies the effects or, or is there something that, that terpenes do that is, one question would be, do they modify the ability of say THC to affect the cannabinoid receptor, the CD1 receptor? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's recent papers that seem to say that is not the case, right? Mm -hmm. There's uh, the Lambert Center in, in Sydney in Australia, but um, there still remains the possibility that uh, terpenes when inhaled, therefore, you know, moving straight into your, your bloodstream mm -hmm. um, and, and reaching sort of higher concentrations, maybe they interact with other receptors, which then right. have their own sort of ad additive effects onto the psychoactivity. So I think, I think we we're not, we're not there. And I, I use the word entourage effect with a lot of caution and a mm -hmm. lot of caveats around it. But I think it's a plausible hypothesis to explain what I think many cannabis consumers have experienced is that the different strains, different types of cannabis have different mm -hmm. effects on them. Yeah. And a lot of people say that I do want to talk about these different types or different strains, the, the way that we but, think about. Can I, can I grab you just before that? And I, I just wanted to address one other thing, which I think is kind of, um, maybe a little bit where we've been too focused on cannabinoids and terpenes, mm -hmm. the fact that there's other components in cannabis that, that contribute to the smell. Um, and mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's just, there's a little bit of a, it's still a kind of a, a bit of a black box in the sense that, you know, when you smell individual cannabinoids, or sorry, individual terpenes. So you get a bottle of myrcene, bottle of pinene, linalool, caryophylline, mm -hmm. terpinaline, you know, what have you. And I've, I've had this because I've, you know, had these labs where we study this stuff for years and you smell them. You're like, yeah, that's myrcene smells kind of like a little bit like an oily kind of diesel, slightly diesely kind of thing. And linalool smells like sort of perfume, like Avon kind of stuff. And, um, and, and caryophylline is kind of like woody, you know, those mm -hmm. things, but they don't smell like, for example, skunky smells, like the yep. really skunkiness of cannabis where, you know, you walk around the city of Vancouver some nights and you smell something and it's like, is that a skunk or is that someone growing weed or is that someone mm -hmm. smoking some weed? Like they're close enough um, that sometimes it's hard for your nose to tell them apart. The skunkiness, I am not convinced the skunkiness smell of cannabis is due to terpenes. I think there are other components in there, likely in this case, thiols, which are sulfur-containing mm -hmm. aromatic compounds. We know that sulfur is, you know, that's where that skunk smell comes from in the animal. Um, similarly with cheese, like, so you talk about UK mm. cheese and it's kind of like, you know, literally it's like the craft Dinner flavor pack, right? It's got that tangy <laughs> cheese smell yeah, and, yeah. Um, that's not terpene based. That's the same kind of whether they're aliphatic esters or alkanes or, or something that is present. That's the, the cheesy smell. Um, another component that's non terpene that, that people are maybe aware of is the grassy smell. So if you have really often it's associated with poor quality cannabis, mm -hmm. which has been machine trimmed. Sometimes there's this kind of smell that smells like a cut lawn or a hay field just after it's been mowed down, right? And it's got this, you know, it's a classic, um, 
it's a component that's produced by all plants when they're wounded. And, and really what's happening is that if you have a cannabis leaf and a, a manual trimmer, a hand trimming might cut the petiole, like the little stem that holds the leaf, while a machine trim might just cut it right, that little leaflet right in half. That damage site is essentially the same as when you mow your lawn. Mm. And that damage causes enzymes to, to cut fatty acids up and it releases a C6, six carbon volatile, which is apparently we're really sensitive. Humans are really easy to able to, to smell these things. And that's, those are other compounds that give cannabis its, its smell, which nobody talks about because they're not terpene. So I just want to make the point that I think the next, the next steps in analyzing cannabis are getting beyond, like there are people still isolating new cannabinoids and all the power to them. That's, that's important work and people characterizing smaller amounts of minor terpenes. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see the next step is all the non terpene volatiles will be kind of the frontier to look at. Interesting. So there's, there's still really a lot to be discovered in the chemistry of those trichomes. Yes. Oh yeah. And just even chemistry alone, but biochemistry, there's, there's like seemingly decades worth of PhD projects just in those little guys. Hmm. And so we dance around this idea of people saying out in the world that are consuming cannabis recreationally and for medical purposes, people saying that there are different types of cannabis, different strains with different types of effects. So the idea is, you know, cannabis is a diverse plant. It's got morphological diversity. So there's plants that look different from other cannabis plants. And it's got chemical diversity, meaning two different plants can have different THC levels. They could have other minor cannabinoids. They could have different sets of terpenes. How, how much diversity is there chemically and how much is that diversity captured or how much does it correspond to what we see in the cannabis stores with all of the strain names and the indica and sativa dichotomy? Yeah. I mean, maybe I could come out right off the bat and say, I'm, you know, the indica sativa dichotomy where you have, I mean, it's present in, in every legal market now too, which is mm -hmm. kind of disappointing in some ways, but it's kind of like indica being plant wise, these sort of short stouter plants, wider leaves or leaflets, um, and um, often considered maybe a bit darker green in terms of the, the leaf color versus sativa, which would be this taller, lankier, more open plant with, with narrow leaflets. Uh, and, and then the, so that's the sort of canonical view of these two types. And then the effects that are attributed to those two types would be indicas would be more sedative, sort of sleepier couch lock versus sativas, which would be um, sort of energizing, euphoric, uplifting, stimulating. Um, and then hybrids would, would be a mix of the two. And mm -hmm. that you'd, you'd have this, you know, I guess a plant that would look sort of intermediate and the effects would be balanced between the two. So that um, that's really how the cannabis world likes to classify their plants right now. I'm not a believer in this uh, classification system. Um, so that I wanted to put that out there at the start, but to go back to, your, your, your first part of your question, which would be, does the, do the products available to consumers 
currently in, in the major marketplaces where cannabis is consumed reflect the, the cannabinoid diversity or the, the chemical diversity that's sort of possible mm-hmm. in cannabis. And, you know, that's, it's kind of hard to say in the sense that um, it may be that there wasn't very much, there was, there was lots of chemical diversity, but the main types were like, you know, a THC type, a CBD type, and a, and a mixture of THC and CBD. Mm-hmm. Those would be the, the main cannabinoids. And that, you know, before humans started like intensively breeding this plant, those were the sort of main types. And there was some sort of standard terpene types. And now we've actually increased chemical diversity in the available types because people have had, you know, gas chromatographs to do terpene analysis. So they're looking for like unusual terpenes, novelty seeking where, you know, people who got really tired of, you know, 22% THC Kush with high myrcene suddenly wanted a new flavor. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we did, we have obviously seen a resurgence in CBD as a kind of a component that was completely neglected for, for quite some time because it was non-psychoactive and everyone was at chasing CBD as a, as a, as sort of market driver and, and CBD um, was, was present in cannabis um, in, in let's call it kind of pre pre boom, pre, you know, uh, California collecting seeds and sort of growing um, cannabis more, you know, for personal use or for commercial purposes in the early seventies or late sixties. But, you know, there would have been CBD in Afghanistan and Lebanon and places like that, or CBD producing plants, mm-hmm. but it was kind of ignored for a long time until the, the medical potential of CBD was recognized. So we're seeing, um, you know, I think many more options in the marketplace around CBD and similarly, the more chemical diversity related to terpene profiles in the marketplace now, because people are looking for that kind of diversity. Mm-hmm. Does, does that sort of get to the question you were asking? In a yeah, way? I think it gets at it. I think a follow-up question I have is with the chemical diversity that's out there today among high THC cannabis. So if you go into a cannabis store, there's a bunch of flour. That's usually going to be the most popular category that people are consuming. And there's a bunch of different types of strains, allegedly. And you can certainly smell differences. You can see differences in the bud. But among the 90 to 95% of that flower that's high THC cannabis with low CBD, do you think it's possible with the diversity that's there at the chemistry level that there are strains that are more energizing on average or more relaxing on average? Or is is that unlikely? Yeah. I think, I mean, I said before that I, I believe the entourage effect is a plausible hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's, it's possible that there are strains in there that for, for most people can reproduce an experience that could be called more sedating or more sort of stimulating. The, the difficult part of this is also that we're, you know, we have this, this plant with this high amount of chemical diversity and we still haven't nailed down. Like if, if something is sedative, what is the component? Like what, mm-hmm. you know, what is it, is it higher myrcene or is it 
you know, lower amounts of CBG or something, but also the fact that people are, are as highly variable as, as the plant itself. There's, mm-hmm. you know, they, they metabolize cannabinoids differently. They may have slightly different, you know, endocannabinoid signaling states. They also have this whole, you know, it sounds like Timothy Leary, like set and setting, right? They, they're mm-hmm. sort of like what they're expecting. And maybe there's a, you know, contributing, um, aspect to this as like the placebo effect. So you buy something that's indica and Leafly says, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is the Supreme coach lock that we've ever used. And then you go and you smoke it and you're like, wow, I'm really feeling tired now. Right. Cause you've sort mm-hmm. of had that kind of suggestion as part of it. Yeah. But to, to answer your question, I do think within that kind of this, this sort of smorgasbord of cannabis that's now available, there are, could be things that are consistently have effects that are, are more like, like sedation or stimulation. Mm -hmm. And I've always wondered, you know, how much of, how much of this stuff can be explained by dose dependent effects from THC? Because I'm, I would be confident in saying that we know as a fact, more or less that uh, cannabis has dose dependent effects. And if you consume something at a relatively low dose, you take a puff or two versus you smoke a lot more, same exact product, you're going to feel very different if you take a lot of inhalations of something with THC versus just a little bit. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that at the other side of that same coin is the, the effects of CBD. So I think there were people who sort of ascribe certain effects to CBD because in you know how the, the ge, uh, genetics works is that you can have THC dominant plants or you can mm-hmm. have CBD dominant plants. And when you cross the two, you have, and, and they basically are because you have two alleles of this, the same THC producing enzyme or two alleles of the same CBD producing enzyme, or you cross them, you get one, one of each. So you have approximately equal amounts of THC and CBD. And so people consuming that would say, Oh, you know, I um, I really found that that uh, CBD had this this effect that I was um, way more clear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it gives me this mental clarity or something. Mm-hmm. And and really, what they're talking about is the amount, the total amount of cannabinoid in that product is kind of fixed. And so when you divide it in two, you're going to get you know, instead of getting 24% THC, you're going to get 12% mm-hmm. THC and 12% CBD. So the, the low dose of THC there had an impact on the effect of the, of the consumption. And they said, oh, that's the CBD, when in reality, it was just a smaller amount of, uh, or a lower amount of THC was the, was the effect. Mm-hmm. How, um, so you mentioned a little bit about the g- genetics there. In one sense, the cannabis genome is a lot like our genome. We get two copies, one of every gene, one from mom and one from dad. And I know that you used to be involved in a big project that looked at the first cannabis genome sequencing. So can you talk a little bit about cannabis genetics and what we know there? How does that genome look similar or different to something like our genome or another crop like corn or something? Yeah. So if you were said, you know, there's sort of two copies, it's a diploid genome, and that's not always the case in plants, you can get, you know, hexaploids, 6N, and, and, 
you know, so it's a relatively simple genome of about 800, 825 megabase pairs, which places it sort of of, of moderate size. Mm-hmm. Like the human genome is over two gig, right? So it's cannabis genome is smaller, but you know, it's bigger than say Arabidopsis, which is the kind of lab rat plant of the of the plant genetics world um, by by a significant amount. Um, the cannabis genome has proven quite, I think, difficult, partly because of the of the dioecious nature of cannabis in the sense that generally you want to inbreed plants to kind of have a homozygous, meaning that the two copies of the genome are as similar to each other as possible. And that gives you an easier time. Is that what they of, mean when you hear growers say um, stable genetics or they're going to stabilize the genetics? Yeah, I think, I mean, they, they say that, but they're not, the growers are not really stabilizing the genetics except by, by clonally producing the plant. Um, so, you know, the idea is that inbred lines, as we find in you know, modern corn breeding and other things, will then, once you've crossed two inbred lines, will produce, you, produce a more stable hybrid, F1 hybrid. And so that would be the goal of, of lots of, of breeding and, and seed production and other crops, but we're not really there yet in cannabis. So, you know, back to the, 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 the genome though, it's, it's, you know, highly heterozygous, meaning there's lots of differences between the two copies, which makes mm-hmm. sequencing quite, quite difficult. And um, the other problem with the cannabis genome is it's full of repetitive elements. So there's lots of, let's say, sort of almost like junk DNA, just that's randomly repeated. Um, and this is, you know, old viruses and things that have kind of hopped in and out of the genome over the millennia, the, the millions of years that that plant has existed. So it, it proved to be quite a challenge. It's, it's still a quite a challenging genome. And, and you know, there's a, there's a couple of other factors. I mentioned the heterozygosity, the fact that it's still not a mainstream plant for people to work on, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the US is only now coming to grips with allowing more research growing to occur in universities. So, you know, the kind of mass weight of, of science focus that you, uh, you put on either a crop species like tomato or, or corn or canola because of its economic significance, or conversely, the scientific focus that you put on a plant like Arabidopsis, because as I said, it's kind of the lab rat, the fruit fly of the plant world. So there's just every lab working in plant genetics in the world is working on Arabidopsis. And so sequencing is focused on that plant. Cannabis is neither, even mm-hmm. though we, you know, we're talking about it. We obviously are, you know, think it's a great plant and, and there's, you know, it's in the news more than corn or canola, definitely, but it still doesn't have a lot of people uh, working on it. And that's, that's, you know, just as an aside, that's one thing as a scientist that I've really sought to, to sort of encourage is the fact that we need this kind of legitimate research ecosystem around cannabis that kind of treats it like a normal plant that, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, trying to squeeze value out of it because there's some company interested or, um, or, you know, studying it because it's the latest fad in, in the news or, or something, but the fact that it has these really unusual 
characteristics. It makes these, you know, amazing diversity of chemicals. It has these bast fibers, it's, you know, hemp, hemp seeds. It has this long association with human history. So there's this kind of evolutionary and cultural aspect to, to understanding, you know, how we domesticated it. For all those reasons, I think cannabis should be, you know, be brought into many more labs and have, have more resources around it. But, but, you know, I sort of digress on that. On the genome, though, I think it's kind of interesting about how this genome, the, the story of the cannabis genome, how it kind of came came to be. Do, you, do we have we have time to chat about that? Probably, right? Um, if you're not time limited, I've got plenty of time. No, I'm okay. Um, my kids might come home from school, and I'll have to kick them out of the room. But other than that, um, so you know, I had I was talking about uh, my my research career in cannabis before and how I got to Germany, I started working on this plant. Um, and, and really those projects were very much focused on biochemistry. And, and I was trying to identify the enzymes of cannabinoid biosynthesis. So how, how you go from basic metabolic building blocks down to THCA or CBDA. Um, and when I moved back to Canada, I had all intention of working on that project. So I took this job with the National Research Council in 2003, and I actually applied for the job um, with a job talk as you, you know, when you apply for science jobs, you, you're invited to come in and give a seminar, gave a seminar on cannabinoid biosynthesis. And I was like, okay, this is going to be great. In 2003, Canada had just started to allow patients to access medical cannabis. So I thought it was a very timely kind of research program to, to start. And um, I went to the, the Institute director in Saskatoon because he needed to kind of give me permission to, to apply for a research license in order to grow cannabis in the lab. And uh, I went to his office and I said, Hey, you know, I'm trying to, you need to sign a letter. And he said, I'm not signing a letter. We're not going to work on cannabis. We're the government. And I was like, because it was a federal government Institute. And I was just like very deflated, obviously. And it felt like a major setback, but also just that I had been sort of, I'd almost been lied to in the sense that I'd been sort of recruited to this position with this idea that I'd be working, able to work on cannabis and then they were denying that. So I ended up working on, on humulus, on, on hops as kind of a substitute for a few years and, and made some really interesting, you know, discoveries and, and things. But um, about five or six years later, I mean, I still was trying to figure out how I'd work on, on cannabis. And I, I, I got some research funding as an adjunct professor at the university there. And I started to sort of piece together a research program on cannabinoid production and biosynthesis. And, and that led to me, you know, isolating trichomes and, and looking at what the genes were that were expressed in those trichomes. Because I said before, those little disc of cells that are in the, the top of the stalk, those are what or making cannabinoids. And so the idea is that if you sequence the, the, all the genes that are expressed in those, if, if you could isolate those cells and sequence the genes that were turned on in those cells, you would have kind of a, an insight into all of the most important genes for cannabinoid production. And then we could use that information to start doing basic biochemistry and, you know, expressing those genes in bacteria and trying to figure out what chemistry they could catalyze. Um, 
So I did that. That was a very successful research program for a few years. And I'd done a bunch of work and published some work. And I was actually down in California in 2008, 2009, um, trying to crystallize one of the enzymes that I had from the from this research program, a, a enzyme that we thought was involved in making cannabinoids. And I was at the Salk Institute, which is like this, you know, world famous biomedical institute in La Jolla in California. And um, I got an email forwarded to me from another researcher in Saskatoon who, it was actually from a professor at the University of Toronto, whose name is Tim Hughes. And Tim said, hey, I want, I want to sequence the cannabis genome. Does anyone want to help? And I was like, well, of course I want, I want to help. You know, I, I, this, is, this is what we've always been dreaming of. And even years before I had applied for money and to sequence cannabis genome and hadn't got the funding. So I immediately joined forces with Tim and we um, started planning this project. And the idea also was that both cannabis was suddenly becoming really, really important economically, legally, mm -hmm. in regulations, et cetera. What year is this again? 2008. 2008. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and by that time, I have to say, I was able, I was growing hemp in my lab in Saskatoon, but I wasn't growing drug type. Health Canada had permitted me to grow hemp, but they were not permitting me to grow drug type cannabis. So I, I got in touch with the one company in Canada at the time that was licensed to grow medical cannabis. And I said, hey, I've got this great project with the University of Toronto. We're going to sequence the genome of cannabis. Um, you're being paid by the government to grow a supply of medical cannabis for patients. We should sequence the strain or the cultivar that you guys are growing because it seems to be the one. And, um, and they said, no, sorry, can't do that. Um, that would, that would infuriate health Canada. Um, you know, we don't want to get in trouble. Um, you know, you can you know, go somewhere else basically. So, I said to Tim, hey, we, we can't get any drug type cannabis, but we could sequence hemp from my lab. And he was like, come on, that's a joke. You know, if we're <laughs> going to sequence cannabis, <coughs> excuse me, um, we're going to sequence cannabis. It has to be drug type. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So then I, um, I, I started to think about, you know, how are we going to do this? And I, I came up with this kind of scheme, which was, I knew people in Vancouver who were growing medical cannabis as authorized patients. So the government had authorized them to grow cannabis. And I got in touch with one of them and I said, Hey, would you guys be willing to donate some material into the sequencing effort? And they said, for sure, you know, come and do it. And, you know, I, what I sort of planned on doing was getting some equipment from the university in Vancouver, transporting it to their basement where they were growing the plants, isolating the DNA there. And the DNA was free of drug value, right? I mean, it's just DNA. Mm -hmm. So no, there was no control over it. And then transporting that to my lab in Saskatoon and using that, it didn't really work that way because I ended up having to get leaves from them. I couldn't get the equipment organized. So I just grabbed a few handfuls of young leaves of purple kush, which was the plant they were growing. And I put it in a cooler on ice and I actually drove from Vancouver to Saskatoon, which is, you know, in hindsight, probably not the, the best idea for like a federal government scientist uh, driving across Canada. But 
you know, it's 18 hours to go driving from Vancouver to Saskatoon. But anyways, I did that. We brought the material into my lab. We prepped the DNA. The DNA was sent to the sequencing labs. And that was really, that Purple Kush sample was the source of the first uh, cannabis genome that we published in, um, I guess it was November, 2011. 2011. Yeah, I always did wonder why it was Purple Kush. And uh, now I know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seemed... Purple Kush um, was widely consumed at the time. I mean, it's mm -hmm. still around. It's about 16, 17% THC generally. Um, and it was just kind of like, you know, it wasn't exactly a lab rat kind of version, but it was pretty standard cultivar mm -hmm. that was available. How stable? So you mentioned it's usually 16 or 17% THC. How stable are the chemical profiles? between different strains. So if, if someone was growing purple kush up there in BC and it came out at 16, 17% THC, they grew it again the next year. Is it going to be about the same level? If they gave a seed to someone else in a different province, how different would it be? Yeah, there's two things there. One is you mentioned seed. So the seed from a plant like that is not going to replicate the plant from which it was produced. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit like, you know, people always said about apple trees. Like if you ate an apple and you threw the, put the seed and grew it and you're, say you're eating golden delicious and you took mm -hmm. the seed, it's not going to be golden delicious that grows from there. And this, the same thing, the problem with cannabis is that there's still a lot of diversity in those genomes, like the, the stable genetics, say for purple kush don't exist. And this is really why Clonal propagation, so cuttings from other plants is the, the, the name of the game with commercial cannabis production because you're essentially cloning. You're making ident mm -hmm. genetically identical copies. Um, so, you know, if you took a seed it of that purple kush, it wouldn't replicate the, the chemistry exactly. It might be close, and some, some plants are a little more inbred and more stabilized than others. But, you know, the, the issue is this, is that, Cannabis, the genetics determine the kind of basic chemistry of the plant. So if you have a THC dominant plant like, like Purple Kush, mm -hmm. it's not like if you grow it somewhere else, it's going to be CBD dominant or it's going to be a mix of one-to-one -one of THC and CBD. Mm -hmm. It's going to keep that THC dominance. And you may, you know, the plant will be... I mean, physically, when you grow it in different places, it, it depends a lot on the environment. Um, you know, it can be short and spindly, getting a bit taller, depending on lighting, et cetera. The, the terpene chemistry is probably going to be relatively set in stone as well. So some, say it was, say that purple kush, and I, I'm trying to remember the, the composition, but Definitely, it's going to be myrcene, pinene dominant. Mm -hmm. So the two main terpenes are going to be myrcene and pinene. If you grew it somewhere else, it's still going to be myrcene and pinene dominant. It's not suddenly going to be linalool and limonene dominant. Yeah. Right. So yeah. The, the the genetics determine that, but the amount of of cannabinoids and terpenes produced is going to depend a lot on the environment. And we have certainly seen this in in research programs that I've been running recently where we've grown, you know, plants in indoor settings under 
fairly controlled conditions and yet the chemistry varies, you might see an 18% run and then there's a 15.5% run mm -hmm. and then you move it to the greenhouse and it's, you know, in the summer it's 21% THC and in the winter it's 17.5% THC. And, and this, is, this is one of the, the difficult aspects of modern cannabis production is that even though the genetics kind of, you know, say this plant should be 20% every time, it de depends so much. And by 20%, I mean 20% THC and say it's one and a half percent terpenes and those terpenes are myrcene pinene dominant. Mm -hmm. But if, if it's not grown right, if the harvest is too early, if, if the lighting is inappropriate, they can change the chemistry downward quite mm -hmm. a bit. Okay. So it sounds like a lot of the profile, meaning the the basic chemical profile, whether it's THC dominant or CBD dominant, whether it is a high myrcene pinene terpene profile versus a high terpenoline terpene profile, say, that's mostly determined by genetics. And the environment is really critical for determining the overall levels of cannabinoids and whether you've got as high a percentage as that plant is capable of potentially making. Right. Yeah. I think the environment, and let's also add the sort of developmental aspect, because obviously you can have a purple kush you know, cutting this tall, it's not flowering at all. And its chemistry is going to be so different than, mm -hmm. you know, eight weeks away when it's fully flowered or 10 weeks away. So there's that developmental aspect as well. I see. And so you have this background in science that we've talked about. You had this background in genomics and, and plant botany and biochemistry. Can you talk a little bit about the time? What was your decision-making process and when was it for jumping into starting a company and how did that, how did you go from science to the world of startups and not just going into them, but actually starting the company yourself? Right. Yeah, no, it was, um, that's, that's another whole sort of chapter and this, the sense that a few things were happening for me in my, let's call it prof professional, but also my personal life that, that kind of led to that decision. Um, Though I'll add that early on in my cannabis science career, I was always thinking there was a potential company, like, like really a biotech company focused on cannabis. I just always had this belief that, you know, it was not just a fascinating plant, but a highly valuable plant that, um, that deserved more study, but also that study could, could lead to economic gain. And there was, there was a sort of, there was some company embedded in there. And, and my mind turned to that idea at a couple of points in my career, even before I left Germany, actually. So I was kind of like, I had sort of thought about that, but um, after I mentioned, I started this job with the National Research Council in Saskatoon in 2003. And, and that had started out you know, it was a good job, but I had had that early trouble trying to get permission to grow cannabis and sort of switched over to hops as an interim measure. Um, but I had finally kind of made a bunch of gains um, research-wise, published the genome in 2011. Um, the um, olivetolic acid cyclase came out around, you know, around that time as well. This was a, you know, kind of a high point in terms of the biochemistry research program. So I thought I was doing well, but NRC um, at the time started to really ch change their focus. Where they we had a new, we had a prime minister 
in Canada at the time, Stephen Harper, who was um, not, not, well, I won't mince words. He didn't like science. Like he was, let's call him an anti-science prime minister. Hmm. And um, he was, uh, you know, he tried to suppress information around climate change and he removed, like he had federal scientists remove the word habitat from their lexicon because it was like, you know, helped endangered species. And he really changed the National Research Council's focus where he said, you guys have to stop playing around with, with um, uh, you know, sort of curiosity driven research. We need something that, that drives the economy. And I said, yeah, but, you know, cannabis is doing that. We've just got this, you know, uh, medical cannabis program for, for patients that's authorized by the federal government. So there's a company growing medical cannabis. We don't know much about this plant. My research program is contributing to that. And NRC was kind of like, yeah, not really. If you want to do that work, you have to find, find some external money. So I, I really sort of felt under, under pressure hmm. despite those successes. Um, but then the same prime minister came along in 2012 and he did something that was actually kind of positive for me in that he, um, he, he and his government were unhappy with the way the medical cannabis program had gone for patients because it had turned from a small number of patients to almost a full-scale industry of sort of homegrown cannabis being distributed to dispensaries. And, and the, the police and the government were not, not keen on that. So he said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take the ability of patients away, but we're going to allow companies to grow medical cannabis to supply those patients. And, and thankfully the patients didn't lose that right. Cause there were some court challenges that, that helped that right away. But regulations came out in December, 2012, which said, um, this is how we're going to allow private sector companies to grow cannabis for, uh, for medical patients. And, and I immediately said, this is the, this is, there's an opportunity here in the sense that um, the regulations both uh, would allow companies to grow cannabis for research, but they're also, there's testing required. There's mm -hmm. knowledge about the plant. And I, um, I mean, the other part is as much as I, I like Saskatoon, my, me and my family are from the West coast. So it was kind of cold, dry, winters in, in Saskatoon and long, long snowy winters that, that, you know, after a while we were sort of hankering to get back to the, the reign of, of British Columbia. So I decided at that point that, you know, the research conditions were deteriorating for my program, but there was suddenly this opportunity to start a company. And I was like, in, so this would have been December, 2012, um, those regulations were published and the new regulations were going to start, I think, April 1st, 2014. So there was a bit of time. 2013 was a time of transition where I, my family and I left Saskatoon. We moved back to Vancouver. I, I got an adjunct professor position at the UB, University of British Columbia at UBC, which allowed me to continue some of my academic funded projects. And I, at the, you know, the sort of um, early age of 44 years old, I started a company uh, that with no business experience, like I had, I, I jokingly say that I'd never even run a lemonade stand as a kid. <laughs> like, 
you know, generally what I did for, for summer jobs was always sort of like digging ditches and planting trees and things. And I didn't, I didn't really have a business background at all. And, and yet I plunged head on to a startup and I, I had in my discussions in Vancouver, I'd found another scientist, John Coleman, who's an organic chemist, also with a PhD from UBC. And he was interested in leaving his position and joining forces. And, and Andio was born um, from, from just a lot of like, you know, plugging away on a laptop um, in effect, exactly where I'm sitting now, because I have <laughs> the same dining table now that I did in, in 2012 or 2013. And so I, yeah, I basically just climbed to the top of the high diving board and, and jumped off and, and saw what happened. And it was just phenomenally perfect timing. There was two, two things that, that helped in India succeed. One is that we were one of the first companies to, to, to offer quality control testing. So the government was requiring product to be tested for you know, cannabinoid levels, but also, excuse me, <coughs> bacteria and mold and heavy metals and aflatoxins. Mm -hmm. And so John Coleman being a chemist really had the expertise to set up this analytical program and at the same time, we were saying, like, we have, um, you know, this sort of biotech plant breeding side is really exciting. And this is the, the future potential. And Anandio was doing both. So that, that was great. And, you know, nobody really had set up a cannabis-specific science company before, you know, at least in Canada. And many of the testing labs that were coming on stream were were environmental or forensic testing companies that were adding cannabis to their repertoire. Mm -hmm. We were cannabis focused. And I was in this unique position that I had this kind of pedigree or, or research uh, reputation. I published the, the cannabis genome a few years before. I had, you know, cloned and published on many of the enzymes or some of the enzymes of cannabinoid biosynthesis. And, and you know, there there are still not that many people who had research credentials in, in cannabis science. And I was at the head of this company. So that opened a lot of doors and, and really um, excited investors and others who, who sort of joined in the Anandia uh, journey. Hmm. So you had absolutely no business background, not even a lemonade stand. You were a botanist with a background in plant biochemistry and in this case, I think similar to what you were saying earlier about how you got into cannabis research within your research career, you were really, um, you were adapting to situations where, you know, one thing was winding down or not going the way you thought, and you had to find something new. And then you just sort of jumped at something that was adjacent that you noticed. Right. Yeah, I think that that was that's exactly it, that I, I was open to these opportunities that were not exactly what I had been planning, but we're, we're close to it. I will say that it was, I mean, moving from the research project that wasn't working to cannabis in 1998 or early 99, whenever that was in, in Germany was, was a kind of more standard thing. By the time I was switching from the federal government to starting in India, I mean, I had two kids. Uh, we owned a house in Saskatoon, two young kids. I mean, they would have been, you know, grade three in kindergarten or something. Um, my colleagues at the NRC, when I told them I was leaving, they looked at me like I was an alien. Like, 
the fact that you would leave a, a well-paid government job with essentially what people call the golden handcuffs, the golden handcuffs being this great pension that will mm -hmm. come to you at the end of your research career or your career or the federal government. And I was giving up all that and, and going to a city, which is one of the most expensive in North America for housing, at least to start a company uh, and, and with, with, you know, they probably thought I was a good scientist, but they, they certainly didn't think that I could run a business. Um, and uh, yeah. And so I, I did, I, I saw that opportunity and, you know, I, I don't, I don't really, I mean, startups is, is a strange thing in the sense that, you know, a startup world is, is a culture into itself, mm -hmm. right? And you and I go, I go to UBC and there's an entrepreneurship at UBC Center, which I actually spent some time using their facilities and they were very, very welcoming and, and helpful. Um, but, you know, there'd be these young engineering grads or software guys or, or maker lab people and they're, they, they take their cues from Silicon Valley and that kind of the idea of what a startup is. And I, I essentially, not that Anandia wasn't a startup, but I essentially ignored that. Like I didn't really sort of follow this, this or standard startup sort of approaches and guidelines. I think I had my own idea of what I wanted to do at that point. Mm -hmm. And I really, you know, John Coleman was an excellent business partner because he complimented a lot of the stuff I did. And we got ourselves like uh, a great lawyer um, because, uh, you know, a lot of what you do in business is deal with legal agreements and whether they're employment agreements or non-disclosure agreements or what have you. And this lawyer was referred to us right at the start and he incorporated in India like November 26th, 2013. And he was a lawyer when we sold the company to Anandia in 2018, like we did, did all that. And we had, we recruited sort of wise men and women to advise us. Um, and I always, whenever I didn't know something, I would just seek out expertise and mm -hmm. opinion and advice. And um, I'm not gonna say it was easy. It was actually um, extremely stressful. Like, you know, there were times when in India, uh, we had sort of run down the bank account and we'd be meeting with an investor slash advisor here at a restaurant in Vancouver for breakfast. And he'd say like, you know, guys, you've got like two months worth of money left. And, uh, you know, at your current cash burn, you're, what are you going to do? And we'd leave that breakfast and just John Coleman and I would look at each other and we'd both be like pale and green because you knew, I mean, you were, you were going to have to lay people off, mm -hmm. sell equipment, you know, maybe the whole thing was going to go belly up. Um, so, you know, startup, it worked because of the timing and, 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 and partly because of my previous expertise, but it wasn't a sure thing. Beyond the actual science, beyond having the scientific expertise to run the scientific instruments and things like that, do you feel like your training as a scientist and as a researcher prepared you in any way for being able to manage a startup? Sorry, I don't have COVID. Um, yeah, I thought about that quite a bit. And I think, I think there's many, I don't know what we call this, sort of, not biases, but um, assumptions about scientists mm -hmm. that, that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the skills to, to be in business. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think there's a bunch of things that I, I, I learned to do. I'm not, I'm not going to say I had, I had some talents probably to start with, but I learned over my, my science career. Um, certainly building teams is like what all scientists do, right? You're building research groups outside of your research group. You're building collaborations to get things done. So there's a lot of both relationship building, um, you know, developing the expertise of people who work with you, mentoring those people, managing human resources, which as CEO of Anandia and then subsequently when I worked at Aurora was always like, I'm going to say 30 to 35% of my time. You're just managing people. I did that before too. At wherever I was working, you were always, you know, talking grad students off the ledge when experiments weren't working or cajoling uh, colleagues to join forces in a grant or something, you know, you just, so people skills are everywhere. And so scientists have lots of the same skills. So when you um, say managing people, you mean just having those one-on-one or one-on-two conversations with individuals to help get them through whatever they're working on that week, that type of thing. Yeah. I think it's the, runs the gamut between working, uh, you know, meeting one-on-one with people who have, uh, both, you know, technical issues or maybe, maybe just motivation problems or or mm-hmm. questions about where things are going, to you know, meeting in whole groups that you know sort of cheerlead the team and 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 bring everyone up to speed on a new direction or introduce new team members. Like, I think there's there's always this mix of like the sort of individual contact because if you only talk to the, say you had ten people working in your lab, whether it's a company or or university environment, and you're just talking to them one-on-one, you you need that sort of shared communication in the group setting as well, and maybe even smaller groups. So, but I guess I, when I'm managing people, it, it really is um, more what you were suggesting, which is like working with people on an individual level to get the most out of them, but also, you know, stressed employees or mm-hmm. upset employees are never going to be very productive. So you're trying to figure out how you can help those situations, maybe even prevent things from from happening and boiling over before before things get too bad. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the things that I think translated well for me from going from academia to the private sector was actually public or just group presentations of complicated things. So in some ways, when you're doing academic research, you're sort of always working towards telling some group of people what you did. And I wondered if you could comment on that and talk a little bit about your funding at Anandia. What was it like raising money? And do you feel like you were prepared for that in any way from your scientific background? Was that extremely awkward or did it come fairly naturally to you? Yeah. I mean, this is going to sound you know, like I'm a sales guy at heart or something, but I found that when you, when I was an academic or presenting research results at say conferences or seminars that I was kind of, you know, you're selling something, you, you're, you're telling a story and that story of course is based on data and, and evidence and, and, you know, polyacrylamide gels or HPLC traces or something, but there's a story there. And so you, I think I, I learned 
how to present scientific information in a way that that was both you know at a level that people could could digest and interpret and but also it was memorable and 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 people could sort of follow the story mm-hmm. and i think those sort of skills helped in fundraising certainly that's what you know i did a lot of is pitching to investors be online it would be phone it would be in person and giving lots of talks and you know panels at investment conferences and cannabis meetings about what Anandia was doing and what uh, we planned to do. And I took to that very naturally. Like at one point, uh, John Coleman and I, so this would have been, I'm gonna say this would have been December, 2017 maybe. We went to Toronto. So Bay Street is the financial hub of Canada. It's the main financial center in Toronto. And we went to uh, Toronto to raise money. Um, and we it was like sort of December 18th or 19th or, or whatever. And we flew out of Vancouver. Uh, and when you leave Vancouver in the morning, you know, you get to Eastern time zone. It's like four hour flight or whatever. So you're getting there early evening. We had some dinner and... Um, Actually, we got there later than that. And we got to this hotel downtown and the power was out. And then in the morning, in the middle of the night, after trying to get some fitful sleep, the, the fire alarm went off and woke everyone up. And then the next day we got up and we were meeting investors to, to raise money for Anandia. We had like a 8 a.m. breakfast and a 9, a 10, 11, a 12, a 1, a 2, a 3, a 4, a 5. <laughs> so there'd be like, you know, 11 meetings or something. And we, I said the same thing to each meeting because they'd ask the same questions. I would you know, give the same answer. We were trying to raise money for the expansion in India. And we got out of there um, with, but with very little commitment. And it was kind of, it wasn't a bus, but it was kind of like, where is this going? By like January 4th, or just two weeks later, I think we raised $13.5 million from that, that one's trip. And so it had been extremely successful. Um, and that was money that was going to fund the growth of Anandia. We we're, you know, taking on new lab space and, and hiring new people. And, I mean, I think that's testament to the fact that after a while, I really learned this sort of investor relationship business fairly well. And I think that stemmed from the fact that I had spent years selling myself and my ideas in a scientific context. Hmm. I um I love this story for so many reasons, but one of them is I see so many like I I have a science background, so obviously I love that there's this what I'll just call a science company or biotech company that was so successful and was and was doing like interesting work from from a biology perspective. But I've seen so many people come into the cannabis industry from other areas, what I'll just call business people. So investment banking types or Silicon Valley tech people, and they have like their own language and their own, their own set of goals and their own styles. And they often say things like, um, what kind of exit they're going to get. They talk about the exit and how to structure the exit. And that just means, you know, selling the company or going public. It's sort of really, it's almost like a coded way of saying, how can I make an incredible amount of money as quickly as possible? And yet, you just told us a story of this botany guy 
who had never even run a lemonade stand and you end up starting a company and selling it for something like a hundred million dollars to a larger cannabis company is I'm assuming based on what I've heard so far that that wasn't necessarily your intention. You, you didn't start the company and have like a specific strategy for how can we get that type of exit? So what was the story on how the sale of Anandia started to come, come into fruition? Yeah. You know, I'll say a couple of things about an exit um, before I, I say how an Andia sale came together. Um, and, you know, many investors, when they're investing in your company, they want to know what the exit is. Like, I mean, if they're going to give you, I don't know, $500,000 and you say, well, we're just going to grow the company and see what happens, or we're going to grow the company and we're going to dividend out money once we start making something. Uh, making some real revenue, they're going to be like, well, that's, you know, that's not that what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And I was always quite, I'm going to say coy about this. Like I didn't have, I didn't found an Andia to sell it. And I, I don't, it's not like I didn't have that in mind. And, you know, when we started in Andia, I mentioned a lawyer who we worked with start to finish, we put together all the right documents. We had a very clean sort of file on Anandia around ownership structure and the board structure and approvals and, and things like that. So we, we, we kept the clean house, um, which was, I think really important because, you know, when you, when your company grows, if you didn't address those issues early on, they just become worse and worse and, mm-hmm. and more difficult. But I didn't, I, I built Anandia because I, I, I really believed in the potential of cannabis. I, I believed in the sort of fun and the curiosity that I had. And i got to do something on my computer there. Um, and I, I mean, by fun, I mean, not just like smile on my face, this kind of passionate sort of focus on, on doing the, what I was doing. And I, I probably didn't want to talk about an exit because I didn't want it to end despite, you know, the fact that I said it was really stressful at some times too. Um, and I, I, if I was an investor and I saw that in a, in a founder pitching me, I might, you know, there might be some investors who say, oh, that guy's a waste of time or that company's a waste of time. But there's others who would say, that's the kind of passion we need to make a company succeed. And so I think that kind of my sort of, not addressing exits and things like that. Not that that was by design, but it was just, that was what I was myself thinking was sort of disarming. And they sort of said, well, that guy's fully committed. That's great. Cause I want my money will be in good hands to be fully committed on what they're doing. Um, so the, you know, the sale of an Andia came about um, to Aurora cannabis over quite a few steps in the sense that um Aurora always had and still has a really strong focus on science and, and, and so, sometimes science backed by as it, as it leads to regulatory compliance, um, but also their quality assurance and quality control was very, very driven by high quality science. And so Anandia started testing for Aurora early on as, a, as we tested for a number of producers. So we had early contact with um, with Aurora um, through that that testing relationship, so they got to know us through through that, um, and that led to you know lots and lots of 
um, you know, closer discussions with their executives. The, the CEO at the time was Terry Booth, who I got to know really well. And there was just, you know, a lot of, I think, good chemistry between me and John Coleman and, and the other leads at Aurora. So we kind of had this, you know, intentionally arm's length relationship with Aurora because as a, as a testing lab, you're working with their competitors as well. And you don't want to sort of cozy up um, too much with just one client, but we, we got to know them and we actually worked with them through some, some, some tricky business um, as it related to not the, they having pesticide contaminated material, but them looking at another supply of cannabis that turned out to be contaminated with pesticides, which actually, you know, it's kind of an untold story of an Andia, but we, our work on pesticide analysis in cannabis really led to uh, like a front page news stories around contamination of some, some producers. Again, Aurora was very safe and very clean. So there was no question there, but others, um, that had to have their product recalled. Health Canada, who's the regulator in Canada, had to change their regulations um, rapidly in order to prevent further contamination by unapproved pesticides. And we we essentially had run some samples on our our mass spec in Vancouver that had detected these these uh, these pesticides. So, you know, Anandia was really leading the way in a lot of very important things in around cannabis and Aurora was recognizing that leadership. And so um, as, as the sort of cannabis boom accelerated, um, I think Aurora was like, you know, what are, what are the assets that can really help us um, outcompete other large players, but also have this sort of global footprint that we're seeking. And, and Andy, they were, you know, it's public record. They bought numerous producers at the time. And Anandia was a relatively modest purchase at around 100 million. I mean, it seems like a lot of money now, but um, you know, Aurora's worth billions, and the cannabis industry was just skyrocketing for, from there. And um, bringing me and and Nandia and John Coleman into the Aurora uh, world made a lot of sense. I mean, I was I was happy because I you know I just left Aurora. I left my position as CSO, Chief Science Officer. So, not quite a month ago, but I'm still a you know a strong supporter of this company. I, I love that. I love what Aurora's doing, and I recognize they and many other companies in Canada have made some mistakes along the way as we've adjusted to this kind of very fluid uh, marketplace. But um, I I was really happy to to sell in India to Aurora. I say that. At the same time, I mean, there's always this kind of seller's remorse. I think this is where if you talk to any other s- startup founders, I mean, you've essentially been the boss, right? I mean, I was a CEO. John Coleman was a chief operating officer of Anandia. And we had a board, but, you know, the board the board was like investors and, and they, they were kind of happy to support most of what I was planning as a leader. And so I was... You know, I, I kind of love autonomy and independence mm-hmm. as, as a person. And, and I've often, you know, that, that's, that's great. And when you, you sell your company, you're no longer autonomous or independent. You've got bosses and those bosses have a board as their boss. And those, 
boards of a public company have real teeth, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they're there to ensure that shareholders are protected and the company's reputation is protected. And so, you know, you don't mess around. And so suddenly, you, you know, you're in a whole other world. So I, I kind of think of my, my career, I mean, in Andia was like one, one section, joining Aurora was, a, was another beast entirely. And I, I probably learned as much or more working for, for Aurora after Anandia about how companies work and how corporations work and how, how, uh, you know, how big companies are organized as well. Interesting. And so all of this, there's like your personal story that turns into the Anandia story and the Aurora story, but then all of that is happening obviously in the context of Canada legalizing cannabis. And so we saw this whole industry start we've seen rules and regulations evolve and so on and so forth um let's talk a little bit about canadian legalization what you know maybe what so far has surprised you about how things have gone for canada um in this first in this first early phase of legalization did anything go as you expect or maybe not as you expect in a big way yeah i mean a few things observations. So there was obviously lots of concern. The sky is going to fall. Our roads are going to be you know, inundated by stone drivers and accident rates and you know, car accidents would go up. Um, that, that kids would have more access to cannabis and youth rates might go up. These would be like, you know, sort of war on drug crusader kind of perspectives. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in some ways, it was an experiment, even though, you know, Colorado, Washington state, other places had legalized, not at the federal level um, and not a, not a whole country in one fell swoop. Um, and nothing like that has happened. You know, the, the police, I think, you know, it's been a little while since they've even commented, but they haven't seen a, a, a huge increase in stone drivers and, and, and road problems. I think youth rates might even be down a little bit. I'd have to check the stats, but I mean, it's, it's negligible. So, I mean, that, that's been, I guess one thing that's, is that there's been some more cases of, let's call it inadvertent cannabis consumption, like children or adults eating a gummy or a mm -hmm. brownie. And that ends up in the paper you know, there's an emergency room visit by, by a four-year-old, which is, is not good. Obviously, this is, you know, unpleasant for everybody, including the, the poor kid probably, but, um, and, and the parents. But, um, you know, thankfully that, that hasn't sort of turned into a, an epidemic of emergency room visits. Um, you know, what I guess has surprised me is the fact that uh, the kind of half-hearted, nature, maybe I'm getting political right away, the half-hearted nature of, of legalization. So Justin Trudeau, who's the prime minister currently and whose policy, you know, election platform included legalization, followed through on an election promise to legalize cannabis. And, and that's, that's, I think, been an a, a excellent step forward. Um, but it was kind of like once that was done, he kind of had expended or the, the party he represents had expended the political capital they wanted to do on that. And, and a lot of the sort of follow-up stuff that I think still needs to be done, like um, adjusting the advertising 
and dosage limits and some of the sort of fine tuning of how people can access cannabis hasn't really happened. And what that's led to is like the illicit market has sort of continued to kind of do whatever it wanted in many ways. So that that's one thing. The other thing is like economic, the economic potential of cannabis, like in India hired large numbers of PhDs and we leased labs and renovated them and, you know, hired 60 people or, or more. And it was really, really hard for, for us to like even get any sort of bank to look at us, including the, the bank that's related to the federal government's own sort of economic development mm-hmm. side. Um, you know, it just seemed like, um, like cannabis legalization happened and then Canada to sort of say, Hey, well, let's be quiet about it. We don't want to do anything more because it might, you know, might embarrass us at the UN or we, we don't, you know, it's, it's been hard enough to get this policy through. We don't want to infuriate the voters who don't like that aspect. So we're not going to talk about it anymore. And I, I just think that, you know, legalization has been, been a positive, but it could, it could, could be even more positive. I even think about during COVID, the fact that I think alcohol consumption and I consume alcohol myself. So I could say this is that, you know, I think it's in general, not uh, a positive during COVID. There's lots of people at home drinking too much. If you go out to bars, which is generally closed now in many parts of Canada, this was leading to events that would be like super spreader problems and things like that. And, you know, cannabis seems to be the right sort of social drug for the COVID pandemic in the sense that people consume it in smaller groups, it's individuals uh, con- consuming it just to sort of take the edge off the day because it's otherwise really stressful time mm-hmm. for a large number of people. And and yet we, we still have super restrictive laws around advertising and promotion of cannabis. And it's a free for all for alcohol, you know, almost in Canada. So I, I, I feel like, I think in many ways, legalization in Canada has worked, but I just, I just wish it was working better mm-hmm. and, and it was being pushed along a little faster. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some more questions around that, but first, because you just mentioned COVID and we're talking about cannabis and you're an expert on the biology side of this, I have heard things come up multiple times throughout the course of this pandemic. I haven't heard it in a while. I was hearing it more in the spring and the summer, but I have heard people say things like cannabis can help protect you against COVID. CBD can help prevent COVID. What can you tell us about cannabis and cannabinoids and COVID? Is there anything going on there? And is there any misinformation that you've heard come out? Yeah. You know, I've, I've done, I've done some reading. I mean, there was sort of midsummer. I think I was starting to see stories about this and a lot of it was preclinical evidence. So not, not, in humans and not in the real world, but more in rodents or for other models where in particular cannabidiol or CBD, which does have an anti-inflammatory effect. So it can reduce inflammation and COVID, at least in, in people who become seriously ill, you often have this kind of overreaction of the immune system. There's this kind of inflammatory response, which cytokines or these signaling agents in our cells that really leads to the, the body almost mounting too strong a defense to the mm-hmm. virus. That's what and they that, call a, a cytokine storm. Yeah. And that's what, you know, people who end up in ICUs may be suffering from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is that 
you know, and some of the preclinical evidence suggested that CBD could, through its anti-inflammatory effects, and some of its, I guess, effects on immune cells, could modulate some, you know, cytokine production or, or this turn down cytokine storm. But my read on that was that it was it was more like more like the entourage effect. Right? There's a plausible hypothesis. Let's do some more work. Let's start, you know, testing this, and. It, it, it hasn't, as far as I can tell, hasn't resulted in, say, a clinical trial mm-hmm. that has shown that consuming CBD uh, helps COVID patients. Um, you know, and, and I guess, you know, some would argue, well, maybe there's a real world experiment happening right now. I mean, CBD is everywhere. There's lots of COVID. Maybe we could be, be looking at, at people who consume, co- or consume CBD have COVID and, you know, do they, do they progress the hospitalization or is their hospital stay reduced or something? I haven't seen any of that um, evidence coming out, but I would say at this point, um, I'm a bit, a bit sort of not skeptical, but just like, well, show us, show us some data, show us some evidence that this is actually real. So going back to questions around legalization, you've seen the birth of, a legal industry at the federal level in Canada. You've got your scientific background and you've got your business background. So you understand the biology and the stuff that's adjacent to that. You understand stuff about how to operate a business and what helps that happen from a regular regulatory standpoint. Let's say that you were called to a meeting with US regulators and they say, Dr. Page, we would love to talk to you about legalization in the United States. Washington has has decided that we're going to legalize cannabis in the U.S. As a scientific expert and as a business owner and entrepreneur, what what would you advise us to do and to not do as we implement this in the U.S.? Yeah. Okay. So I think there's a a few things. Um, One is that I think it's natural with with any consumer product or, you know, whether it's a food or alcohol or, or even tobacco is that, you know, federal regulation should focus on, on safety. Um, I think, you know, there's been surprisingly few um, cases of, of illness attributed to cannabis. I mean, certainly people can consume way too much and green out or get, get, feel pretty sick, but um, you know, like things like, Food poisoning, for example, has not does not occur with cannabis products in, in high number. But we do know Evali, which is this vitamin E acetate vape issue that hit mm-hmm. the cannabis industry, but also the nicotine vaping industry last year, is an example where if things aren't carefully regulated, you can harm a lot of people. I mean, I think Evali killed more than 50 people. Right. Yeah, um, I think so. 63, maybe. So this would be a failure of regulations. Uh, I think of Evali is a, some of the strongest impetus for federal legalization in the U.S. But I would say, you know, what I would, would tell federal regulators in the U.S. is implementing a strong um, requirement for, for testing Mm-hmm. And, and product safety around cannabis is paramount. That mm-hmm. would be a sort of a foundational aspect. Related um, to that, well, how would you... So related to that, the issue of testing and safety, 
I think a lot of people in the U.S. would point to with that with that vaping crisis that most, if not all, of those products were actually from the unregulated market. And so you've got this issue where cannabis is state legal in certain places in the U.S. and it's federally legal in Canada, but you you still have a thriving illicit market. And so, what are like why is that? Are there regulations that are allowing the illicit market to continue to thrive? How 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 would we combat that? And are you talking? So, yeah, in Canada, the illicit market continues to thrive. And I guess, I mean, some of it's it's historic. It's just like supply chains have existed and consumers have been mm-hmm. relying on those. There's also, a, you know, an issue of, of taxation. I mean, you know, if you don't pay taxes, I mean, may, maybe some people are, are paying taxes at some point in the supply chain, but in general, your, your, your dealer is not adding taxes to your bill. Um, so, you know, things are cheaper in the black market. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you're, you're right in the sense that the Evali crisis mainly hit illicit vapes and therefore federal regulations wouldn't impact them. In fact, they might put more sort of barriers around illicit production, raise costs, and then therefore lead mm-hmm. more people to go to illicit and I, I guess that would be another cornerstone of, of what I would suggest is that I think there needs to be a time where there, you know, the, the regulations are focused on, on safety, but not necessarily on sort of like a, a high return in terms of taxation, where there's, you know, there's a sort of a, a period when prices are somewhat kept intentionally lower in order for the regulated market to, to compete with a illicit market, with the hopes that people will eventually gradually migrate to the, to the regulated mm-hmm. market. And I know public health you know, policy people would say that the tension there is if you have low prices, it does encourage consumption that people might be consuming more cannabis than is potentially healthy for them, or it might be more accessible to, to more people say younger people who have less money or whatever, and that you're, you're, you're leading to, you know, if you looked at, you know, a tobacco kind of model, higher taxes are there to, at least in Canada, where we tax cigarettes at a, at a high rate in order to sort of limit uh, consumption. And mm-hmm. so there's this kind of teeter back and forth, push and pull on that. But I, I mean, I guess the other thing is I would say is that, um, you know, I, I worked, my company was work, bought by a large corporate cannabis player and I worked as an executive in that company. So I, I'm certainly not against large companies being involved in the cannabis space. But I would also say in terms of where federal legalization should go in the U.S. is that there's the best ecosystem is a mix of the sort of small, medium, and large players mm-hmm. that you have, you have room for the mom and pops. And I have visited, you know, Humboldt, California and talked to the old school guys. And I certainly grew up in Canada with, with neighbors who had small grow ups that they, they had. And those, those people are part of the economy too. And so I would, I would, you know, and maybe this is sort of some of my sort of lefty uh, viewpoint, but I would, would hope that you know, there's, there's room for everybody and that the playing field is kind of leveled in a way 
you know, that regulations aren't so stringent that you need to have like a team of lawyers to get it, get through everything. Mm-hmm. But there's still some little guys. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, I look at the big players in the U S many who are listed on the U S stock exchange and Aurora is a big player globally and canopy and stuff. And, and I, and I think there's room for, for those big players alongside of, of small ones as well. Mm-hmm. What, um, are there any, are there any new innovations or new cannabinoids that you see coming in 2021? Or are there any cannabinoids that you're excited about besides THC that you think might have interesting psychoactive effects or something like this? I'm hearing more about CBG. I'm hearing rumors about THCV and appetite suppression and even psychoactivity. What do you think is on the horizon with uh, new cannabinoids? Yeah, I mean, the the, the story with, with those non-THC, non-CBD cannabinoids has been sort of building for a few years now where, mm-hmm. you know, um, the pharmacology of THCV is really unusual. It binds the CB1 receptor like THC, but it's kind of biphasic, I think. So, and, and it, it appeared to be um, having potential um, appetite suppressing activity at that receptor. So, um, and then, CBG is, you know, showing up, it's, it's present in some cultivars now at, at, you know, relatively high levels, 3% in in some cases, two and a half or 3%. Um, I'm not sure the, the sort of in vitro pharmacology says as much about CBG's activity as, as THCV, but I would say um, both of those cannabinoids uh, will will likely start to be emphasized in the marketplace where there you know consumers who are looking for some novelty producers who are looking for differentiation might start to to put out you know hopefully it's flower products I'm not sure I would really be super keen on a CBG vape at this point not knowing. Um, as much, you know, we don't know, have that much information around, around that, but, you know, some flower pro- uh, products that, that are, you know, there's these varin stri- strains, these kind of THCV dominant, not mm-hmm. dominant, but at least uh, strains where, where THCV is more abundant and they would be interesting to see in the marketplace and, and, and start to see in, in terms of feedback from people, what they're experiencing. Um, I mean, there are these, highly potent rare cannabinoids that are showing up in the literature that are not, you know, they are found in the plant. Um, these would be like side chain variants. Like I, I forget if it's a heptil side chain. Is that the, is that the, that sounds right. Seven yeah, and seven. It's CBT. Is it CBT? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, it seems to be highly potent, um, in terms of the in vitro pharmacology and, and I guess, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see if labs start analyzing. I know some labs are doing this now, but more labs would would start looking for these other variants and seeing if they are related to some sort of user reported effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit. I, I think we also have to be a bit cautious in the sense that, um, you know, I, I'm more I'm more confident when it's a flower product with a diversity of chemicals that sort of come from the kind of, maybe it deviates a little bit from the norm of what the 
what the chemical composition of, of standard strains are, but I'm, I'm a little more uncomfortable with, with the, you know, the sort of, uh, I don't know, THCV distillate, you know, when the idea that we, we still haven't fully studied some of these more rare cannabinoids and their effects on humans and that they would end up in the marketplace, um, you know, potentially, you know, high levels of, of some of them um, when we're still sort of scratching our heads around what the effects might be. I mean, you know, one of the compounds that we we had, which was a CB1 antagonist, this was a purely synthetic uh, product, Romanabent. This was this um, oh yeah this bl blocker of CB1 activity, um, and and the idea was that it was going to be market marketed or was produced by Sanofi Aventis. This is, goes back a decade or something um, or more um, as an anti obesity drug or anti diabetes drug because it would, you know, if, if activation of CB1 receptor would trigger essentially the munchies mm -hmm. and people were consuming more, the inverse would be true too. If you block that receptor with a drug, maybe people wouldn't want to consume any food. And, and I think it worked. They didn't want to consume any food, but they also had no, no pleasure in anything in their life. And in that mm -hmm. sense that they, there was like suicidal ideation, which means I guess it's thinking about suicide and, and people had, you know, depression and, and just, it was not a good drug. It was pulled from the market for this reason. Um, and, you know, if THCV, I don't, I don't in any way speculate that it has that activity, but, you know, the fact that it, you know, appetite suppression goes hand in hand with this sort of blockage of CB1, I would just, you know, sort of counsel caution with some mm -hmm. of the sort of in the, in the wild pharmacology experiments that might, might happen. Mm -hmm. Well, how about a question around like the speed of innovation in cannabis? So let's just say, you know, someone decided we're going to make a THCV dominant strain, or we want to make a one-to-one THC THCV strain. How easy or difficult is that? How long would that take? Assuming everything was lined up to, to even try. Yeah, it, I mean, GW Pharma has published on some of those, a breeding program that took them quite a long time to, to produce, a, you know, CBG dominant, THCV dominant, CBC dominant. So it's possible. Um, it, it, I'm going to say it could take start to finish, um, you know, several years to get to these kind of, maybe not one-to-one, -one, you might be able to move faster because there's some genetics that are already in the, in the sort of gene pool that are, are showing significant levels of propyl cannabinoids. Um, so it, it's gonna take a few years of traditional breeding. Um, it might, might be faster if you can find the right, right starting materials. There might be some sort of mutations that are just kind of lingering around at low levels that people could discover. Um, and, and we've gone for quite a while now. I do want to ask you about one more area. So you've seen the birth and the maturity of the cannabis industry in Canada and in the U.S. And now we've kind of got this new, you know, the new, the new kid on the block is the psychedelics industry. And so given your business background, but also your botany and plant chemistry background, what do you make of this industry? How much of it is hype? How much of it is legitimate? And what are you excited about that you're seeing there? Yeah. So 
to be truthful, I had been so wrapped up in the cannabis industry that I had very little time to, to sort of look outward into, and it, it is kind of like, I sort of put my head up one day and I was like, whoa, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, I've, I've been fascinated with, with psilocybe mushrooms and psilocybin for a long time as well. I mean, I, I, I find just that whole botanical side really interesting. And, um, Tim Hughes and I actually considered doing a psilocybin mushroom genome just hmm. right on the heels of the cannabis genome. We didn't get around to it. And has that ever and, been done? Yeah. Yeah. People have sequenced the genome and they've actually identified the, the um, psilocybin sort of cluster, the, the, the biosynthesis cluster, or at least many of the enzymes involved in making psilocybin. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm quite, I'm going to say I'm very supportive of this change, this openness to uh, psychedelic medicine. I think it's, you know, uh, fully, you know, what is it, 60 years or something since like some of the early LSD experiments around addiction and and in psychiatry. I mean, some of them actually done in in Saskatchewan uh, by by sort of pioneers in that area. Um, and so I, I think there's a, there's a huge amount of potential, um, let's call it healing, but, or, or benefit to humans, um, by consuming these drugs. I mean, Canada, were allowing people to con- consume psilocybin in, in palliative care situations when they're, you know, facing their last days and they're, you know, people are very, obviously very upset by where they are in, in their lives when that's happening and that this is showing promise. And there's been this like ministerial level exemption of people in order to consume uh, psilocybin in a controlled setting with, with uh, psychologists or psychiatrists. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's really promising. I think there's a lot of other drugs that, other than psilocybin that are, you know, ketamine seems to be um, have a lot of value uh, you know, in depression and this, you know, a lot of, I mean, you, you tweet about this. So I see a lot of it through your, your Twitter, the neuroplasticity related to psychedelics. Um, so I, I kind of um, view this like an enthusiastic bystander at this point. Um, at the same time, I'm kind of like, I wouldn't say trouble, but I'm a little bit skeptical around this, this sort of shroom boom, as I've heard it referred to that, you know, and I think it comes a lot from the cannabis boom, the fact that cannabis generated a lot of wealth for people who got in early. Um, and there's a lot of companies competing in the space. And I actually don't see psychedelics turning into the same type of products as cannabis, which is, is widely available and used more on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I know there are people who say, well, microdosing is a daily basis. And there's lots of people who are benefiting from microdosing, but I, I kind of actually think I wish there was sort of more focus on, on stronger sort of clinical support and exploration of the science rather than just a lot of investor money going into sort of me too companies that are Mm -hmm. all seeming to, to do this. Um, But at, at the same time, you know, maybe this kind of full bore capitalist approach, as long as it doesn't get, you know, too out of control is going to, you know, 
more people studying something can often lead to advances more quickly mm-hmm. just because you you have more chance of of sort of stumbling on some something really important so maybe that's that's a benefit and also the fact that some people are looking at at ecstasy or mdma some people are looking at psilocybin there's ketamine there's i mean there's is there like an ibogaine sort of thing going on where you oh yeah so they just so ibogaine for those who don't know is a super potent alkaloid that has very strong psychoactive effects. There's some reason to believe that it might help with addiction treatment, but it also has severe side effects. Like when you take this, apparently you can be tripping in a fairly intense, maybe even terrifying way for like a day or more. Right. So it's, it's very potent. Someone recently synthesized an ibogaine analog, an ibogaine-like drug that had some of the good aspects without the bad aspects. And there's an animal study that indicated that you could make that that version of ibogaine, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, ibogaine is from this West African tree or the roots of a tree, and it's used in these kind of uh, sort of coming of age ceremonies. And it must be fairly terrifying to consume this thing at a coming of age ceremony. But um, you know, so and and you know, ketamine is is. I mean, it's used as an anesthetic commonly mm-hmm. in emergency rooms in Canada, at least. Um, so I just think there's a lot of potential there. And, I, you know, in general, I feel, um, you know, I, I've, I'm a believer in the fact that, that humans seek access to chemicals that, that change our state of consciousness. And the fact that, um, you know, a, a positive of this psychedelic boom that's happening right now is also the fact that, you know, states and cities are voting to legalize access that we're, we're finally sort of pulling back on these kind of uh, war on drugs controls on things that, I mean, essentially psilocybin mushrooms grow. They're not in my backyard right now in, in January, but um, you know, I, I was at UBC one time, University of British Columbia, and I was meeting with the the curator of the mycological collection, and we were talking about psilocybin mushrooms because we both had an interest in these. This is only like three or four years ago. And um, and I I said, oh, have you seen any psilocybin cyanescence, which is these ones with the wavy caps? Mm-hmm. I mean, so they're they're the like the locally the most potent psilocybin mushroom. That's what I've heard. They're more potent than the regular cubensis strain that people probably have seen. Right. Yeah. So quite a bit more potent. So I said to him, have you seen any cyanescence around? Because they used to grow in like bark mulch under rhododendrons and things on the campus quite quite a bit. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll show you. So we walked out of where we met and then around the corner and there's like a, at the university there, there's like a sort of an open plaza where there's like the, the university bookstore and there's a cafe and there's kind of this meeting area. And right in front of the Starbucks of the, in, in the bookstore is this bark mulch bed with these newly planted kind of azaleas or something. And it was all essence. And there's like, you know, there's probably a thousand students walking by staring at their cell phones and there's like, so it's not questions staring them in the face if they look, but, um, so, I mean, even that, the fact that these are wild organisms and yet they're banned by government mm-hmm. law seems always to me fairly crazy. So, I mean, long-winded way of saying I'm really supportive of the, these, the psychedelic movement and it just seems to be growing leaps and bounds, but I'm, 
I'm kind of, um, I'm not an investor in any psychedelic companies. And, and I, I, I think I'd be careful about that at this point, not to say never, but I'd just be really careful. Mm-hmm. Um, any final thoughts you have to share? Maybe, maybe even something around, I don't know, some advice that you might give to graduate students or postdocs today who are in the science world, but they might, you know, maybe they have some ideas, maybe they have a vague notion of doing something else or turning the, the hardcore science into a company or, or something. What, what might you say to those, to those individuals, given your experience? Yeah. So I guess what I would say is that um, at that point, you know, in your life, you, you, you need to build a team of, of sort of advisors and experts actually at any point in your life, when you're starting something new that you're not going to know how to do it right off the bat. And you sort of have to humbly go to people who have other expertise and, and ask them for, for guidance and sort of, you know, build relationships with people who can advise you because I, I just think that it's, it's too much to ask, you know, a grad student with a, with an idea, if it can be, you know, business success, they, they need that sort of mentorship. So I, maybe that's the point. Look, look for mentors, plural, who can, can assist you. Um, so I think that that's one. The other is that, um, you know, you, you know, it's, it's kind of a, seems like sort of self-help book kind of stuff, but you know, you can't be afraid of failure. Most, most startup companies fail. Um, and, you know, if you go in there really worried about the fact that if you, you know, you, your startup idea doesn't work out that you're kind of lost, you've lost years or you're never going to succeed in something else. Like you, you can't have that mindset. It has to be sort of like you're fully committed, but you're also committed to kind of being resilient if it doesn't doesn't work out and being it's a little bit like science right you I always used to counsel people who are new to sort of wet lab biochemistry that most of the time it doesn't work and and building this kind of like mindset of resilience and grad students who are doing that kind of science is really important because it can otherwise they, they just don't make it right mm-hmm. they, they they drop out because it's it's too stressful and so the same thing goes sort of with, with the startup world. You've got to be ready for the, the setbacks and maybe the complete failures. I would also say the message that I would give is like I started in India when I was 44 years old, hmm. right? I was very, very far from that kind of like grad student postdoc sort of point where people always think that's where startup success comes from. And in once in a while, I'll see this on Twitter where someone will have done some analysis and it's actually like 45 is the average age of a successful startup founder. Um, so I guess the other point that I would say, sorry, <coughs> to grad students or postdocs is finish your PhD or, or whatever, or master's or whatever you're doing, or finish your undergraduate degree. I think that's way more important. Um, you know, the timing of it, maybe it's it's kind of like I'm giving conflicting advice because I at one point I said timing is everything and India was the right place at the right time. Um, Canada 2013 was the right right time to form that company. And if I had waited to finish something, maybe I wouldn't be the timing wouldn't have been as good. But I but I do think I benefited from completing 
my PhD, completing those postdocs, going to Munich and other parts of Germany, working in the lab, grinding it out, doing, building up that expertise, learning how things worked, all the time sort of learning something new and, and pushing something. And then when I started the company, I was ready to go. Um, so I would, you know, I, I, I'm actually kind of disheartened when I, when I hear people are, you know, three quarters of the way through their PhD and they're like leaving to do a synthetic biology startup. I'm like, just, just get it, get the thing done. Mm-hmm. Like I'd prefer to see the PhD behind your name and co-founder or founder of a company than just founder. <laughs> so that would be some of my advice. I guess the other part is that, um, you know, one thing, one thing about the difference between science and startup or business is in science, the currency is, you know, it's publications, it's new knowledge. You're creating something that that's, that's what society is paying you to do, right? And, you know, could be vaccines for COVID or could be psilocybin mushroom genomes or whatever, but they're, but what you're doing in business is making money. I mean, it really is that that's the core principle of business. And I mean, there's, there's altruism and there's corporate social responsibility and there's being a good corporate citizen and all that kind of stuff. But that that's really, the mindset is, is a big switch. And if you, if you felt the passion for science um, because you're creating new knowledge and you're at the cutting edge of something and you're switching over to the startup world, even if you still have that passion for science, your investors are talking about money and you have to, you know, you have to know that and, and embrace it and, and believe in it, or you're going to sort of feel like, what am I doing? here? So I think people need that fundamental understanding of, of that and, you know, maybe that's obvious, but to someone like me who didn't do business before that, that was a shift. Mm-hmm. Well, John, thank you for your time. New record for me. This is the longest recording I've done so far. Um, I really appreciate everything that you had to share with us. And I think a lot of people are going to, to really love listening. Great. Well, it's wonderful to, to talk with you, Nick. I know we've over the years chatted about indicas and sativas and terpene composition. And, you know, in some ways, um, you know, maybe we could dig into some of that in the future, but it was, it was excellent uh, to chat with you and the time just went right by. So I have no, uh, no regrets. <laughs>